G'day, mate. Forty here. So I think I got the COVID this week. I don't think I've had it before. I've, I've never tested positive for COVID. I still haven't tested uh, positive for COVID. I mean, how do people go out and get tested when they're sick? For me, it was like the last thing I wanted to do. Alzi, why would I then want to go to a doctor's office or why would I go out into I wanted to do public and contaminate people? Right, I, I spent uh, the past five days staying away from people. I don't think I've come within six feet of anybody in, in the past five days. If I was going to be even possibly close to running into people, I was wearing a face mask. So I don't know if I had the COVID this week, but I tell you what, Monday evening, just incredible amounts of congestion. I just couldn't breathe through my nose anymore. And then by Monday night, the, the fever was starting. And I think, oh boy, this is... This is hardcore. What I hate is when there's a slow, gradual buildup of like a sore throat and you just feel the symptoms build day after day or they're just kind of hanging in the background for days, even weeks, and you know you're going to get sick and you just want it to hurry up and be done with. So what I liked about my experience and what I think was COVID was that a bam, wham, bam, thank you, ma'am. It just hit me Monday night. I hate it when it drags on for days or weeks and it's just kind of niggling around in the background or it's just slowly building sore throat, just hanging on in November I had a sore throat for, for three weeks but never you know fully got got sick this wham Monday night I was just knocked out I just felt awful uh Tuesday I felt awful I, I didn't do any work all week uh Tuesday I felt awful I could I think maybe I watched uh, 90 minutes of Netflix total that day so I spent most of the time just lying down listening to Ian W. Toll's trilogy on the Pacific War in World War II and great, great series of, of books. So by Wednesday, I was able to be sit up and watch Netflix, watch watch movies. And that's what I did Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. Not, not able to be productive. But by Wednesday, I was definitely feeling a lot better. Uh, Friday afternoon, I walked a block and back. And then today... Density, it, it, it hit like pretty much like a regular flu. But what I'm, I've heard from a lot of people is that they still feel weak uh, weeks later, that they still haven't regained their physical vitality. So I'm curious about that. When am I going to re regain my animal spirits? Right, Joe Rogan has come out, said he's really sorry that uh, he's listening to all the criticism about having all these anti-vaxxers spreading COVID misinformation on his show. And, and he's, he's really sorry. So the excellent podcast, Decoding the Gurus, has done three shows on, on Joe Rogan. And here's the latest on his recent apology. I'm not interested in only talking to people that uh, have one perspective. That's one of the reasons why I had Sanjay Gupta on, Dr. Sanjay Gupta, who I respect very much, and I really enjoyed our conversation together. He has a different opinion than those men do. I had Dr. Dr. Michael Osterholm on at the very beginning of the pandemic. Um, he is on President Biden's COVID-19 advisory board. I had uh, Dr. Peter Hotez on, who is uh, a vaccine expert. I'm interested in finding out what is correct and find, I'm also finding out how people come to these conclusions and what the facts are. So, Matt, first of all, there's the positioning that he talks to a diverse range of sources, right? And he cites some of the, the pro-vaccine 
people that we've had on. Most of those are not recent interviews. And I would also really recommend that if somebody wants to compare, go and look how his interview is with Sanjay Gupta and Peter Hotez and compare it to the interview with Robert Malone and Peter McCulloch. What you'll see is that he's extremely critical of any claim by Gupta and Peter Hotez, and he presents it often as he's just playing devil's advocate. But he's very animated. He's constantly asking them to cite studies and to prevent the evidence. And as we saw in the Malone and the McCulloch episode, there's very, very limited pushback. And the vast majority is saying, is that true? And as you heard with that question, you know, the leading one that went on for like 10 minutes, Joe is on board with their narrative, whereas he's extremely skeptical when it comes to people with a pro-vaccine narrative. So it's not that he never has pro-vaccine guests on, it's that he treats them very differently in terms of the level of skepticism and evidential standards that he applies. Even if what he said was true, like he was treating both of these positions even-handedly, which he doesn't, I agree with you there, but even if he was doing that, then I still don't think that's good practice to have some reasonable, decent voices on and then have absolutely insane people on as if these are equivalent positions. And what gets me about people uh, talking about their, their COVID experience is that uh, your individual COVID experience doesn't s say much about the overall pandemic. It says virtually nothing. So I was uh, really sick for a day and then moderately sick for four days. But that says nothing about the overall severity of the pandemic. And it doesn't say anything necessarily about you as a human being or about your level of uh, taking care of yourself. It doesn't say necessarily much about uh, your level of exercise or your level of nutrition. I noticed that people on the right, they, they believe so strongly in free will, they feel that there's this general sentiment on, on, on conservatives is that people can essentially just chart their own path in life. And there's very little thing such as luck that uh, if just people make the right decisions, they eat the right foods, they do the right exercise, then they'll be safe from disease. But uh, genetics has a tremendous amount to, to do with life outcomes. Uh, luck has a tremendous amount to do with life outcomes. So we can influence the direction of our life, but we can't determine uh, you know, whether or not we have a long and healthy life, right? There are some things out of our control. We don't get to choose for example, our genetics. Conditions that deserve equal respect and airtime. It's still really bad journalistic practice. And I know he doesn't think of himself as a journalist. He presents himself in this video as an entertainer. But as we heard in those videos, he comes across um, very much as an activist, not an entertainer, not a decent journalist of any kind, but rather an absolute activist for whatever conspiracy theories are running around his head at the time. There's a clip that speaks to this, Matt, which is him presenting that he, you know, he wants to bring people together and he, he doesn't want the gender controversy. Uh, so no, uh, no hard feelings towards Neil Young and definitely no hard feelings towards Joni Mitchell. I love her too. I love her music. Chucky's in love is a great song. Uh, I don't know what else I can do. Uh, differently other than and uh maybe blessings to try Black. harder you, to sir? get people with uh differing opinions blessing, on... bro i'm glad you're with us still thank you thank you very much thank you for keeping me in your thoughts and prayers
I mean, I was stunned by the news, bro. Stunned. You, uh, so it was a real COVID this time. I don't know because I haven't gotten tested. I don't know how people go out and get tested when they're sick. Like the last thing I want to do is to leave my house. Mm. So I'm just guessing, but, but you, I have no idea. Weren't you sick like a few days prior to leaving to? Yeah, Australia? I had a sore throat for two weeks prior to leaving for Australia and for my first week in Australia. Uh, but yeah. um, I did definitively test negative for COVID before I got on the plane. Okay. But then you got back and you're back for a couple of weeks and it seemed like you were really bringing the streaming game back to life. Uh, you had that Egyptian um, UC Chicago student yes. interview. Yes. And yes. You, you had some, uh, you know, you know, I think you had like 40 viewers at one point. You had like a solid audience at one point. Yeah. It and was, it was like the old days. <laughs> yeah. So I thought Luke is back in both. Yeah. <laughs> I thought, and then uh, you just dropped off the scene, and uh, I, I didn't know. We were all wondering, but <laughs> oh man, I was I was nailed. So, um, but you're not. So you're not really sure it was COVID. No. Nah. Um, did you have a sense of smell? I mean, whenever I get a flu, I always lose my sense of taste and smell for a day or so. So, is that really a true indicator of COVID, or is that just a bad flu? Yeah, I, I don't know. But given that, uh, well, probably one in, in 10 Californians right now have, have COVID or just getting yeah. over COVID or, you know, live with someone with COVID. Uh, yeah. There was an article in the New York Times, that's, no, the Wall Street Journal that says, uh, at no time in the past hundred years have so many people been sick at once. That was the supposition. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Uh... I don't know why I'm, I've been so fortunate to have skated through this basically unscathed. And usually I, I, I tend to get like a pretty bad flu once a year, or at least every other year. So knock on wood, I haven't really uh, had that yet, uh, but I'm prepared to get it. And, uh, you know, I just realize it's inevitable and I'm sort of resigned to it. Well, I think um, Steve Saylor made an interesting point. He said that unlike with, the AIDS, uh, the people getting COVID are often the best in our society, the, the, the most social anyway, the people who are going to parties, who are going skiing in Aspen, who, who are the most social and mixing with people, they're the people most likely to get COVID. And so I don't know how much of a social, social body are you these days? Uh, you know, I'm, I've, I'm basically a hermit these days. Yeah. Uh, so that's the and... primary reason you haven't gotten COVID, I yeah, yeah. So it's just all the more. <laughs> it's just another affirmation of my chosen lifestyle. Um, so, um, but I do have to ask you. Uh, you know, I, I, you know, you you have a certain amount of skepticism. You have a lot of skepticism towards vaccine skeptics and so forth. And you know, we've had these conversations in the past. I don't necessarily want to sort of delve into those, but. It is strange to me that people having, if people started coming down with measles left and right, and uh, it was more or less assumed that everyone was going to get measles, there'd be an outcry about these vaccines not working, would there not? Uh, it, it would it would depend upon what we were told about the vaccine. So with regard to the COVID vaccines, we were told that they'd be anywhere from 60% to 90% effective at reducing infection. 
but considerably more effective than that at reducing hospitalization. So there was at no point were we told that vaccines would be 100% preventative against getting COVID. We, we heard numbers from about 50% to about 90%. And the efficacy wanes uh, steadily in, in the months after you get the, get the shot. So now let's no, take no, measles. No, wait a second. But that, yeah. Is that really true, Luke? Though? Is that really true? Because we were told that these vaccines were safe and effective, right? Yes. And I, it's really hard to put the effective label on these. Well, if you, they reduce the death rate and hospitalization rate to about 2%, what it is without the vaccines, yeah, that's uh, no, pretty but impressive. But, but that's, is that statistic legitimate? Because there's a lot of confounding variables in that statistic, right? People who don't get vaccinated often don't take care of their health, right? They're often, you know, uh, have other complicating uh, comorbidities. So, so to simply say that the vaccine sort of lowered your, uh, uh, the duration and severity of the, of the disease isn't, I don't think that's really proven statistically, or if it has been, the data hasn't been sort of generously shared with the public. It's in fact been concealed from the public and it's created, uh, I think, a legitimate air of suspicion around people who advance these spurious statistics. I mean, I don't know where you come up with that. I read it pretty much all the news stories about the, the recent wave of Omicron is that the people who are hospitalized, that uh, more than 90% of them are not vaccinated. I mean, that's in every story that I'm reading about hospitalizations from Omicron. Okay, so what is what qualifies as not vaccinated? Zero vaccinations? Only two, Zero fa- only vaccination. One. Okay. Um, and no comorbidities, right? So the only reason they're in the hospital is COVID. There's no comorbidities among these 90%. No, there's, simply... there's no, there's, I didn't read any mention of comorbidities, but virtually well, everyone right. has so... comorbidities and people with comorbidities have frequently been living with them for 40, 50, 60, 70 years without getting hospitalized. Okay, fine. But why isn't this data plain? Why hasn't this data been made plain? And, uh, you know, why isn't conversation being discussed in a sort of discussed in a uh, open and scientific uh, manner which, you know, all of the variables that go into the decision, go into the conclusion are, you know, are available to the public and open for inspection. <laughs> it's not widely discussed. What's happened is, it, you know, there's this, there's this continuous uh, 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 castigation and uh, diminution of people who have a, you know, a legitimate skepticism. So, it just it's always seems to be whenever there's a vested interest, right? They're very loath to show their data. This is the same with climate change. They're very loath to show their data. They show they quote other people quoting other people who are experts, but they don't actually show you the empirical facts that underly that underlies those conclusions. I, I don't read any newspapers, Luke. Okay, so you don't read any newspapers, then you have no basis to to make the statements that you just made. No, I mean, I, 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 I you know, I casually consume the news uh, through snippets and things, but I don't, you know, I I hear a lot of people asking for data, and I don't see a lot of people offering data. Data's everywhere, but you'd have to Show probably subscribe data. to a newspaper. Sure, yeah, okay. dig it. Right. You can so, Google it. <laughs> Okay. What's uh, the data? Google. Like, what's the hospitalization rates for vaccinated well, I, versus unvaccinated? Uh, okay, I'm laying down in bed, so I'm not going to Google it at this moment. But 
when I look at when I look at uh, death rates of San Francisco day after day, week after week, and they're zero, right? That to me is data. That's data taken from Google and it's taken from the New York Times. So, and we, you know, so I'm looking at the data. The data says zero, but the headlines are screaming, uh, you know, uh, the sky is falling. Okay, so in uh, in the Go San ahead. Francisco Bay Area. They have have much fewer rates of hospitalization and death from COVID com- in Northern California compared to Southern California. And why is that? Because Northern California, San Francisco in particular, very high rates of vaccination, much higher than in Southern California. So that's why yeah. you don't have the high death rates, precisely because your peers are much more vaccinated in San Francisco than they are in Los Angeles. So what are the numbers? So how much more? Okay, so... Um, COVID-19 incidents and death rates among unvaccinated and fully vaccinated adults, uh, April 4 to December 5, 2021. This is the first result from, from, from Google. And so you have to, you have to read some, some scientific, uh, papers here. No, 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 no. All I want to know is what's the vaccination rate in San Francisco versus LA? What's the difference? Okay. So I think it's. Vaccination rate, San Francisco, uh, COVID vaccination rate. Um, so it says uh, 64.3% of the population fully vaccinated. Uh, no, that's the United States. So, okay, vaccination rate, San Francisco versus Los Angeles. But it seemed to be about 10 points higher in um, the San Francisco uh, Bay Area. So, okay, so why is Southern California hit harder by Omicron? than Bay Area. So why does Southern California have so many more deaths? So there are more than 2,400 COVID-19 deaths recorded in Southern California since New Year. The equivalent of 11 deaths for every 100,000 residents in the Bay Area, the death rate was four per 100,000 residents. So why is that? And health officials credit high rates of vaccination and booster shots. So let's have a look here. Uh, getting vaccinated and boosted the best protections against severe COVID illness and death. Unvaccinated people are 22 times more likely to die than boosted individuals, according to the California Department of Health. So 82% of San Franciscans, 84% of Santa Clara County residents are considered fully vaccinated. That means two shots. Half have received a booster shot. In Los Angeles County, 70% of residents are fully vaccinated and one third have gotten a booster shot. Okay, so it's 84 versus 70. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. And so, um, and the death, okay. So the rates are, the rates track, I mean, okay. So with your, you're comparing very small quantities, right? Four per 100,000 versus 11 per 100,000. These are actually very minuscule quantities, if you think about it. I, I don't know if you say uh, minuscule. In, in Southern California, we've had more than 2,400 COVID deaths in 2022 and in, in the in, bay in the area you've got po- 300 okay what are the populations right so the, the percentage okay what i'm saying luke is four per hundred thousand versus 11 per hundred thousand these are trace amounts irrespective give even though it's you know 11 is 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 two and a half times more than four there's still trace amounts. These are trace quantities. Like it's like CO2. CO2 is a trace gas, right? So minor changes in the in the amount of a trace gra- gas is still insubstantial. Right? 
I, I don't regard 2,400, you know, lives as insubstantial. 2,400 lives in the face of 20 million, right? How many people live in LA or Southern California broadly? So there are about 10 million, I think, in Los Angeles County. So okay. let's see, Los Angeles County. I think we've There's got 30 a million, 30 million in California as a whole, right? No, there are 40 million. 40 million. Okay. And... So yeah, 10, 10 million in uh, Los Angeles County. So, all right. So well, okay. And what's the Bay Area? Bay but this is Southern California's COVID death rate. So Southern California would be uh, twenty five million people. Okay, so twenty five million, twenty four hundred over twenty five million, right? They said eleven deaths for every hundred thousand residents. So. Okay, so we keep switching between whole numbers and percentages, and so therefore our conversation is gets very muddy, right? So yes, twenty four hundred people seems like a lot of people, but you you know you have to put those numbers in context relative to the whole population. Right. So on nine eleven, like that's the most dramatic event in 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 American history, probably since uh, uh, the Cuban Missile Crisis, and right. You had and so 3, that was 000, You had three thousand people die on nine eleven. 3,000 people on a singular event, right, in history, and then versus, uh, you know, 2,400 people uh, in the face of a, of a population of, uh, what was it? But the US has had about 3,000 deaths from COVID pretty much every day. Okay, so, last 18 okay, so, so the whole number... 9-11 like, number of deaths each day for about 18 months. Okay, so you, you said, well, so in a previous conversation, you said uh, 9-11 was a 10 and January 6th was a 4 in a scale of 1 to 10, right, in terms of severity. So we had like, but your numbers are all off, bro. Your epistemics are broken, my dude. Like, there was what, one death on, on January 6th? And there were ah, three Death rate's not the only thing that, that accounts for the significance of an event. Okay. So there's the United States the state capital. It's never happened before that, that uh, the American people have risen up and rioted and taken over control of the United States uh, state capital when when uh, Congress was in session. So, yeah, I think that's a significant event. But it's a four. 9-11 being a, is a 10. Yeah, off, off the top of my head. Okay. Maybe well, somewhere between a two and a four. Okay, more like a two, probably. Yeah, I don't have any argument against a two. Okay. And I could see it as high as a four, and I could see it as low as a two. Okay. Well, if it's a two, we're in the same ballpark. I think. Anyway, I, I, didn't, I, wanted, I didn't want to have an argument with you, Luke. I mean, I was, I was here to celebrate your triumph over this disease. Thank you. And here we are. <laughs> here, we are. <laughs> here we are trading barbs. You know, I wasn't... <laughs> <laughs> I, didn't really, I didn't want to take this nasty turn but uh, apparently yeah so anyway you're on the men right yes and, thank god uh, what uh what is your protocol what is your 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 healing protocol well the number one important thing to me was that i didn't want to pass it on so i severely restricted <laughs> myself from all interactions so yeah. I, I i didn't think i came within eight feet of anyone for the past five days. And that was not easy. So I essentially kept myself in my room, even though there was a beautiful sunny sky outside and I wanted to, wanted to go outside, but 
until yesterday afternoon I didn't go outside. Yesterday afternoon I walked a block and uh but oh my, and so the number one thing for me was to not transmit it. Yeah. Uh number two thing was that I released myself from all all basic responsibilities. I, I canceled meetings with my sponsees. Mm. Uh so I let myself off the I, you know, work assignments. I said, I'm I'm off. I'm off this week. You know, I'm sick. I could tell it was gonna last a few days. And then yeah. um took vitamin C and, and some zinc and uh, did a lot of nasal washes because my, my nose just got very congested. It was hard to breathe out of my nose. Mm. And uh, I drank some green vegetable juice, got some fresh squeezed uh, green vegetable juice delivered. From Amazon? Yes. Yeah. Bezos. Bezos comes through at all, at all times, all places. So yeah, that, uh, those were my my uh, protocols. Oh, I took I enjoyed taking a, a long hot shower, kind of opened up uh, nasal passages, etc. So was it mostly in your head? Was it mostly like yes. a stuffed head? It wasn't yes. in your lungs. Yes, yes, that mm. was so different. It I didn't even get a sore throat, and mm. but I'm I'm now struck by the muscular weakness. Like walking a mile, walking up a flight of stairs, I was out of breath today. Um. Now, are you are you're over it? I mean, you're you're healthy enough to uh, to stream, obviously. Um, but what what do you think? You're eighty percent back, ninety percent back? Oh no, I'd say I'm like twenty five, thirty percent. Like I haven't even I haven't sat down with a book. So... You're not able to read and concentrate. Yeah. Mm. Uh, well, no, I'm uh, struck by the number of people who still feel physically weak among people I know, like three weeks, four weeks later. I don't hope, I hope that doesn't happen. But I mean, that's also when I get the flu, when I get the serious flu, I'm, I'm physically weeks, three weeks or so. Hmm. How about um, you? What, what's your protocol when you get the flu? Oh, I have, I, okay. So I read a long time ago that the way to deal with the flu, so a flu has, goes in phases, right? There's certain phases, like the onset phase, and then the, the intense affection phase, and then there's sort of like the clearing out phase. And each one of those phases requires a different approach, right? So like during the infection phase, you want to sleep, you want to I mean, you drink um, broths, you know, uh, you know, meat broths, but if, if, you're, if you're not a vegetarian, um, you want to sort of treat, you want to bolster your immunity that way. But once the infection set in, uh, you want, uh, of course, a lot of sleep, but a lot of hot fluids and um, lemon juice, you know, lemon teas and things like that, a lot of lemon. Um, and uh, yeah, you sort of take it as it comes. But oh, then, then another thing I think is you do is you, what I do is I shower very frequently. Uh, to sort of just wash, just be as clean as possible, change my bed sheets as frequently, just get those germs away from you, you know, and give yourself a fighting chance to sort of limit the infection. So uh, there's no magic bullet once it's really sort of taken root. You just have to sort of endure it. But um, but rest is the is the big thing. And like no no, 
you'll crave oils and things. You'll crave the wrong foods when you're sick. And you should really not succumb to that because those are the foods that would actually feed the virus or feed the bacteria. So you want to you want to have a real Spartan diet if you can. Low and, in oil. And how 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 important how much important do you think infections how how uh, important are these? Um, it's hard to know. It's hard to know. Like uh, a couple of weeks ago, I felt like I was getting sick, right? And I immediately. I immediately said I just kicked into, uh, you know, immunity defense mode, which is uh, no talking. Okay, that's a big one, by the way, Luke. You know, you know when they talk about uh, T cells. Do you know what the T and T cells mean? Comes from? Not sure. The thymus, the thymus gland. So your immunity, the the cells that do that fight infection come from your thymus gland. So that's why they call them, you'll hear them called T cells. T is short for thymus. Where's the thymus, Luke? It's in your throat. It's by your sternum. Okay. It's this, and so if you're taught, when you talk a lot, you actually deplete your thymus gland. So you want to talk, you want to stay silent and not talk and not blab and not stream, Luke, because <laughs> you're, you're depleting your 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 primary uh, defensive defensive immunity your 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 defenses. So what I do is I go into quiet mode. I go into sleep mode. I go into uh, you know hot tea mode and try to just limit the damage. I've dealt with you know I've dealt with flus my whole life. I'm very susceptible to them. So I sort of I have my own personal. Um, you know, protocols and batteries that I throw at these things. And so, you know, I've been able to, um, oh, and also, you know, meat broth, you know, the old chicken soup thing. I, I make some chicken soup. So, so how, go ahead. What, I'm going to finish on that. Oh, so any, anyway, so anyway, I'm just, I'm just very highly attentive to it. And I, I don't, I know I, I sort of, you really get you really pay attention to the signals that your body is giving you at very subtle levels and and uh just heed them very very uh scrupulously meticulously um so so a lot of times if i was getting sick i would sort of you know in the old when i was a kid i would just try to ignore it right pretend it's not happening and then do things that would exacerbate it right like stay up late over exercise, stay out in the cold, do all the wrong things just because I was in denial, just sort of as an act of denial. This yeah. is the wrong thing to do. You have to, the first stage is acceptance, Luke. You must accept you're being sick. And I remember I'd, I have a date with a beautiful woman and it was immoral of me, but I went out with her and I made out with her even though I could feel myself coming down with something. She, she didn't yeah. live in town. She was going back to San Francisco and <laughs> I wanted to go for the gusto. <laughs> you're gonna roast in hell for that one bro <laughs> well um anyway uh so football season came and went really quickly ended precipitously for me i was really becoming like this late blooming football fan and then sam did you watch the game oh yeah and, and i mean yeah. did you did you one thing that we've got to make it you know bigger than football the important thing is that that you it's a tremendous source of energy. Like if you are living in a town 
and you're listening to radio stations in your town, such as the phone, and you're getting connected yeah. with other people and getting caught up in the hoopla about your team, it's a tremendous source of energy in your life. So, thanks. It is. It is. And like, um, so I was just kind of reflecting on that, you know, being sort of swept up in this emotion, this sort of collective experience. And then having it, I don't know if you watched the game, but it was a certain thing yes, where, where I, we I had like, it. there was like this gimme interception. It yes, couldn't have the, been easier, yeah. right? You yeah. remember that play? Yep. And it just kind of bounced off his chest. And to me, it was just like, we were ahead at that point, I think. In San Francisco. And I just felt the tide turning right at that moment. Yep. It was such an omen, you know? And I think it was right before halftime or right after halftime. No, it, was, but I, uh, it was in the fourth quarter. It was like uh, 10 minutes left in the game. Oh, really? Yeah. Okay. Well, we were ahead at halftime, I believe. Yeah, you're, and... you're ahead by 10 points in the third quarter. Too. You're ahead 10-7 yeah. at halftime, then you're up 17-7. Then the Rams came back, uh, got it 17-14, and then uh, Matt Stafford threw what looked like a game interception to San Francisco safety. About 12 yeah. minutes left in the game and dropped it. Oh, so it was that late in the game. Wow. Yeah. Well, I remember starting to feel like we were at halftime. I, I was, I was, I was really conscious of not being jubilant because I really felt like, because we had pulled the rabbit out of the hat so many times before where we, where the, the, the situation was reversed. We were, we were behind in the beginning of the game. Then we'd come back late, but this was the time we were ahead at halftime and it just felt awkward and it felt, uh, it felt false. And it felt like it was a house of cards about ready to collapse so I started having this feeling at, at halftime. Did you watch the 49ers finished... Super Bowl uh, two years ago when the same thing happened? They were up by 10 points, I think uh, late in the third, early in the fourth quarter against Kansas City, and the exact same things, thing happened. Kansas City roared back, and the 49ers just collapsed. Almost identical. Watch the Super Bowl no, two really? years ago? No, no, I didn't. I didn't. I didn't. Like I said, like I took a long, long, uh, well, long hiatus from sports. Um, basically, after nine eleven, I started really tuning out of sports. But now, I feel like I'm coming back. I'm coming back in. I noticed it was not when, when when I flew to Sydney that that my interest in American sports dropped like almost fifty percent. Hmm. And when I was in Australia for a year after high school, my my interest in American sports up significantly changing your location it has such a tremendous effect on me like my priorities shift. well one thing that's interesting yes because you you feel like the collective thing but one thing that's changed is that the cameras like these hovering cameras that sort of swoop above the game you know so you yeah. get this you get the the television coverage is just so much more compelling now yeah i, I right? remember i i stopped watching in the NFL between 1988 and 1993 and that yeah. five-year break when I came back I couldn't believe the improvements in technological progress so yeah if you step away from the game for a few years and come back it's dramatic yeah like you could really see that you know in the old days you know when I was growing up it would be like this this television uh this sort of grainy semi-color semi-black and white television and you would just see these these vague shapes bashing into each other. But when you see it up front, you see like that this the pure raw physicality of the of like the offensive line, defensive line clashing. It really uh, 
really makes the game a lot more raw. Yeah. And and I think you see it much more in a much more exciting fashion on TV than in person. Cause I used to cover the 49ers. I would, (coughs) I would just able to go down onto right onto the sidelines with two minutes left. They let the reporters come down onto the sidelines. And so I would be, uh, you know, I would be about five feet away from the sideline. So I was right there that the teams were going at each other, like right in front of me, you know, I could, I could lean out and touch you know, a player wow. if I wanted to on the, on the playing field. And it didn't look nearly as dramatic. It, it just looked much more scruffy and, and dirty. And uh, when you're like right there, but with the, with the TV coverage, it just, it, it becomes a lot more clear. So when you're down on, on the ground level, you just see, you know, really big guys, you know, smashing into each other. Uh, yeah, but from from the TV level, I, the game's much more clear and much more dramatic. I, I think it's much more exciting to watch it on TV, even at five feet from the sideline. Yeah, and like I can really understand now. I can understand like what defense is really all about, you know. And like you can, I can, you can really pick out like a really good defensive play. Like before, to me, it was you know it used to be just like two offenses, and the defense was just sort of like this. A good, obligatory little, uh, you know, game that a little obligatory little uh, charade that they put on, but you could actually see like the uh, the defensive guys doing defensive things, you know, and like you can pick out a good defensive play. So this is this is also something new to me. So <sighs> I don't know. It was a good time, but um, I don't know. So then, so anyway, so anyway, so we we lose, right? Uh, we're out of it. And then the next day, it's like a storm had passed, you know? Yeah. <laughs> like the, the entire bubble is gone, right? This invisible bubble that you've been in is just completely popped and you're just back into mundane life again. Yeah, uh, like uh, sports has that, that capacity to lift you out of your mundane life and to bond you with, with other people. That's where the emotional energy comes from, that you're on the same page with, with other people and you're transfixed by by what's going on and it just kind of carries you along like the tide yeah so what's uh what's life like in san francisco bay area this time of year so in in los angeles january is just a wonderful time of year the air is clean and fresh you can see the, the mountains you know you can see miles uh you can still wear shorts the temperatures in the mid to late 60 70 degrees and uh, but what what's the what's the weather like? What's life like in San Francisco Bay Area in January, February? It's it's as you say, it's it's similar to L.A. It's um, we get more rain. We haven't had rain in about a month. We had a lot of rain in December, but now it's just this perfect clear air. Um, like you said, you know, kind of mid sixties, crisp, um, but the sky is perfectly clear. And so when the moon comes out, you know, you see for my, you can see, you can see your face in the moonlight because it's so bright, you know? So yeah, winter is my favorite season, believe it or not, in, in California. Summer is my least favorite. Now, San Francisco is quite cool in the summer, right? It's, it's foggy and cool. Yeah, it's terrible. It's, 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 it's disgusting. It's, it's the worst. It's, uh, I, I now dread it like I used to dread the winter in on the East Coast. And what do you look, most look forward to doing when uh, the coronavirus fades? 
Um, um, I, I guess I would go out to eat at a restaurant. That's the only thing that I can't do because of coronavirus. Everything else wouldn't change. I mean, my, my lifestyle has been really changed and altered by Corona. It's where, you know, I've become a lot more self-reliant. I do a lot more cooking. I do basically only, I only cook, for, you know, I don't eat out. And I, uh, I've sort of gotten a habit of uh, cooking my own meals. And I'm just really impressed with the quality of my own cooking. So I, I don't think I'm going to sort of rush back into restaurant culture the way I was prior to COVID. Um, I'll go skiing once this COVID hysteria is over. I think I'm going to go skiing. I'd okay. still like to go ahead. Well, yeah, I'd like to go skiing again. And I haven't been able to because of COVID. So, did you have any favorite moments from uh, Internet Blood Sports? Um, which chapter? The original chapter? Yeah, late. It was really at its height, uh, late 2017, first three months of 2018. So, yeah, well, there's the, of course, the, I guess it was kicked off by sort of the, the Richard Spencer Sargon interview. Well, that, that was like, that's, that was like March. So, it was really kicked off by Kraut and, JF Garopi and uh, Andy Wosky oh. and the Okay, so Kuna one thing Tang. I've been following is this whole Ethan Ralph thing. Have you been following this? A little bit. What in particular? You hear he got beaten up in uh, yes. Portugal? Yes. I mean, in it, I mean, really beaten up. Not like, I mean, he was had to be hospitalized, apparently. Yeah. And it, it got me thinking. So apparently a lot of these people are really into drug use in a, in a big way. Like pills and I'm not just talking about drinking. I'm talking about like narcotics. And it struck me that people who are on narcotic or use narcotics on a regular basis, they're in the middle of a whirlpool that's going downward, right? Yeah. And th these, these events start overtaking them and they don't see how they're contributing to this downward spiral, right? They see that they see the people acting on them and they don't like them. They see them as, you know, as personal actors. They don't see their own contribution to the situation. And so they, so they double and triple down and then the spiral keeps going stronger and more tightly and the events get worse and worse. And it really struck me that Ethan Rao is in this really tight downward spiral and he has no idea that what his contribution is to it yeah and and thinking about it, all the people most successful from internet blood sports it didn't turn out to be good for any of them so uh, the, the kumite guy uh tonka saw you know he, he his, his thing uh fell off a cliff uh, andy worski uh just completely disintegrated uh baked alaska is in a lot of trouble his life spiraled downward it looks like and nick fuentes is in a lot of trouble though he managed to you know build the biggest career out of uh, internet blood sports uh, jf garapi has managed to hold on but you know with an audience about one one thirtieth the size of what he got in internet blood sport days uh but it seems like overwhelmingly for most of them it was even the most successful ones the most successful they were the worst effect it had on their real life yeah i was also thinking about that like the internet itself is a drug um or at least internet fame is a drug that has some very pernicious effects 
that inflate your self, your sense, inflate your, it causes you to, to lose proportion of your own importance, right? Uh, because it's such a vicious internal game. If you're like any, um, any of the successful YouTubers, the ones that were quite famous back then, they all started tearing at each other. And so pretty soon their, war, their wars became wars between who, people who were basically ideologically aligned, right? Yeah. If you think about like, and, and just how vicious uh, it, it went and uh, who's really left standing? I mean, Nick Fuentes, you think he's, I mean, he's in trouble. He's right? in great trouble. I mean, JF seems to be standing, but uh, I don't think many people would envy his life. Uh, yeah, he's way up in Canada now. Like yeah. Self-sufficient farming. Did he get divorced from that woman? I don't know. Okay. Yeah. You know, it's like... Um, this is the first time in history that any sort of... Any population had to deal with... It's something very new, right? That everyone can be their own talk show host. Yeah. This is the first time in history. And so it was. it was sort of like these tools that people were given and they weren't given any instructions about how to use them or the dangers inherent in them. So that e-personality, that, that, the perils of the e-personality uh, book that you, or was it a, was yes, it an yes, essay? the perils of the e-personality. I love that book. It was it a book or an essay. It was, it, a, it book? was a book, yeah, book yeah. by I a psychiatrist. Read... Yeah. But I kept banging on about it. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, it's weird. Cause it's sort of like, it tapped into everyone, every every theater kid's like uh, high school aspiration. Yeah. Suddenly, there was this venue for them to express it. Right? Yeah. <laughs> so they didn't quite make it in Hollywood, but they suddenly had this, and it sort of unleashed all of this raw creativity, you know, for better or worse. And <laughs> it was really exciting. So I don't know, but yes, people are the the, the wreckage though. There's going to be a lot of lives have been destroyed by this, and. Uh, I don't know. The the the, the, uh, the results are still in doubt. I mean, I, 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 okay. Who's in legal jeopardy right now? Fuentes. Uh, baked Alaska. Oh. Nick Fuentes. Yeah. Anybody else? Oh, I guess. Uh, Ethan Ralph seems to constantly be. be oh in yeah, legal he, jeopardy. he's got a slew of legal problems. Yes. Now he has physical yeah. problems, right? Yeah. yeah. So. Um, and Spencer, I mean, he has legal judgments against him. Is it is was that really a result of the internet? Sort of, hey, it's not, mean, somewhat. Yeah, yeah, you'd think. And it was certainly a contributing factor, right? None of these things could have gotten off the ground without the internet. Yeah, and and the internet does sort of bring out your more uh, extreme, less filtered, less courteous aspects of your personality, and so it's sort of like an accelerant. You yeah. can light a fire, but the internet is sort of the gasoline that could really uh, well get the blaze going. Yeah, let me just restate the thesis of the, the, the virtually use the name of the book, The Dangerous Powers of the E-Personality. And so he makes the point that once you go online, you immediately become more impulsive, uh, more grandiose, uh, more attention-seeking, and you become willing to share darker things than you would if you were engaging with someone face-to-face. So what's particularly funny about online personalities is their exaggerated sense of their own importance and their own 
their own power and their own capability. Like that, that's one of the entertaining parts of the, the blood sports is, is seeing how delusional people are because it's, it's really hard to go on here and, and talk and, and share your views and share your personality without you know, revealing uh, very easily how out of touch with reality you may get. But in, in real life, it's, it's, it's not as tempting to reveal how out of touch you may be. Yes, for sure. It's sort of like it, it lays bare your id, you know? Yeah. And um, like Richard's famous speech, that was sort of like a unfiltered id moment, you know? Yeah. And the sad thing is, is it's like if that were to happen pre, pre-internet, it would only be a rumor, right? Yeah. But now it's sort of recorded in, in perfect, you know, perfect digital fidelity forever. He yeah. can never not, he can never deny that, right? That moment is recorded and it's perfect. It's, it's an indelible part of his personal history. And it, it's, it's not a flattering moment. And it's going to, it's going to, it's going to handicap him, you know? Yeah, and it's not so much, I think, that the, it's not so much in my mind that the internet warps people, though it can. I think it's more true that it reveals people. So you take a J.F. Garapi and Andy Worski, when, when they went their separate ways, uh, you had an idea, you know, who was going to head in, in what direction. Obviously, I think they were more compelling, more entertaining together. But once they split up, J.F. went in a higher IQ direction than Andy. You know, Andy mm-hmm. starts burning his nipple and uh, you know, engaging with various substances and just goes completely off the, the deep end. Uh, JF eventually tires of having to deal with other people. You know, he just wants to run the show himself. And so he, he runs a daily show himself and has, has a loyal following, but, but the viewership is you know, one thirtieth of what it used to be. So it's that small. Yeah. I didn't follow him when he changed his channel. Like, uh, I don't know. You know, I cut way back, you know, I saw, I see this, what's the word. Okay. So I was also thinking about this where, you have a lot of these e-personalities and then they have basically uh, collapses in their personal life, right? Right. They fuck up in some bad way. They do something really bad and embarrassing. And then everyone sort of just dap, you know, dunks on them forever. Right. So there's this whole culture around uh, rubbing it in their face, right. Rubbing their, their failings or shortcomings in their face. And so It's really to sort of li- to listen in on that, though. It's sort of this. <clears throat> it put, it's a, it allows you to not think about your own shortcomings, but sort of revel in the, the in the excesses of someone else's shortcomings. And so it's sort of uh, you know it's a way of invi- evading personal responsibility by 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 just. Well, a certain personality prefers to, you know, be be into drama rather than looking at their own life. Yeah, it creates this very seductive spectacle that um, allows you to overlook your own failings. And so I, I, uh, so I sort of noticed that I was doing that. It was sort of like this. I don't know. Uh, it's just a debased way of living. 
Yeah. Now, uh, Half Galician says Elliot and Luke are talking about low lives getting their five minutes of fame, like it's the mystery of the Sphinx. Well, first of all, many of these people didn't have five minutes of fame. They earned tens of thousands of dollars over a year. And so that it wasn't just a, a flash in the pan. If you, if you keep cranking something out for six months for, for a year and you have an audience size of 10,000 uh, live viewers and millions of viewers or told for your product, that's not just uh, a low live flash in the pan. So these are highly talented people who you know, attracted this attention. And some of them, you know, proved you know, more stable than others. Like Mr. Medica, who apparently is a, a married person, you know, he seems fairly stable. Uh, he, you know, he enjoyed the internet blood sports era and then, you know, went on with his life and, you know, did his job and family man. But, you know, other people spiraled, spiraled downhill. But, uh, you know, Andy Worski had a very, had an important part, a important cultural moment you know, in his, and same with JF with, with internet blood sports. So he, these are people with some talent. Yeah, I, I agree. And I, I didn't realize, okay, I didn't really understand the uh, the dollar amounts involved here, but, you know, I, I think it might have been like 10, 20 grand a month for some of oh, these Oh, sometimes 10, 20 grand a show. Like if, if you are drawing 10,000 live viewers, you know, you're making a minimum of $10,000 from that show. No way. Yeah. So that's basically the... you. <clears throat> so what through ad monetization or through super chats yeah <clears throat> I, I, I'm, I'm overstating it i think i'm overstating it by um by 100 percent. so probably half half the number of viewers is probably you know what you're what you're making so they'd get sometimes 500 dollar, 200 dollar, you know super chats <clears throat> it's a good business i could Oh yeah, they—they, they, I mean, Woski <clears throat> and, and JF made tens of thousands of dollars. Yeah, and then I noticed, like, uh, you know, uh, Worski had a pretty severe uh, cocaine problem, and Me my too, understanding yeah. is co cocaine. Well, no, he's admitted this. Oh, I mean, okay. He's, and he's sort of come. He's gone clean now. He's sort of on recovery. That's why I think he'd be an interesting interview for you. Um, I don't know if he'd remember his your your first your appearance on his show. But uh, he's definitely in the recovery game now. And um, it would be a really good get if you could, uh, uh, if you could get him on your show. Um, but the point is, is that, you know, he had a very uh, intense cocaine habit. And I think a lot of these people did. But I think cocaine, when I was growing up, cocaine was this incredibly expensive thing. And very, nobody could really even, even afford it. So either the prices come down or these people are making lots and lots of money. Yeah, I, I think uh, some of these people made made a lot of money, and then there are people who have depended on this for their living. Like Ethan Ralph got a serious criminal conviction, so I believe he's he's earned his living from live streaming for about four four years now. And uh, I think JF Garapi has primarily earned his living living from live streaming. Andy Worski did for a while. So uh, uh, Mersh, that guy, that comic Mersh, seems to completely depend upon. Uh, whatever money he can raise from a live stream yeah so there's a so there's an there's a new uh development in that story um there's a new documentary coming about on merch i know not, i know i've got it got it lined up 
not particularly flattering. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'm going to play, I'm going to play some excerpts because, uh, porcelain, the guy is doing the documentary. He just yeah. did a five hour plus interview with Mr. Medica, which is incredibly compelling. I can't believe that. Okay. I heard it too. Okay. I heard a lot of it. I heard a lot of it. So it was hilarious. Yeah. 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 It was hilarious. And like, you know, red bar gets a mess. So red bar is this figure, um, that has a lot of respect. I, I think a lot of people respect him. And I think uh, he is a very, I really like Red Bar, but I think he's actually um, deathly ill. Um, oh, no. Wait, that is right. Yeah. Okay. But anyway, his and uh, he, he sort of cut into, he, he, he laid into Mersh, and I think that was set the signal for everyone else to sort of go after Mersh. And so now um, Mersh is sort of on the chopping block. But then Mersh has this sort of big alliance with Ethan Ralph, and they have both similar sets of, a similar sort of psychological profile as they present. Yeah. Um, and it's not a winning one, shall we say. So, uh, yeah. So this whole chapter is, it uh, seems like the, um, what's next, Luke? What, what's, um, what's the, uh, what's the, you know, sort of independent media innovation Substack, or is there something else out there? Well, if if the, there are people with a compelling personality and a compelling writing style, I mean, this is an opportunity to to make some money doing the things that you love. Now, it's incredibly demanding, and you know, most people don't have the talent or the energy or the intelligence or the emotional sobriety to pull it off uh, long term. But uh, you know, some people can. So what is, what is your relationship to streaming going forward? Have you thought about it? Well, uh, my relationship has been, it needs to fit with the rest of my life. Like my internet life is not at war with my life at Shul. My internet life is not at war with my life with my friends. My internet life is not at war with my you know, walking around in Los Angeles and running into people. Uh, my internet life is not at war with earning a living. So... I, I've, I think I've pretty much always done this within the context of it has to fit my life. It's not that my life needs to fit my, my internet. So when I was blogging about the porn industry, then my life had to fit in and around my, what I was doing on the internet. But uh, since, since 2008, um, I fit my internet life around my, my real life. So that means that I take into consideration everything that I say, what, how it's going to land with you know my friends at synagogue, my friends that I see, you know people I see down walking down the street when I you know, take on a new client, a new earning opportunity, uh, running into strangers, uh, you know, meet someone at a party and they Google me, like I take into consideration the effect that my words and my show you know will have on the rest of my life, and that doesn't mean I necessarily give other people a veto over everything I say. It means that I take other people into consideration. So I think there are two extremes that people fall into. One is F everybody. I'm just going to say everything that I want without regard for you know, how other people are going to receive it. Or then the other common alternative is, you know, I'm only going to say that which is safe and inoffensive. And I think there, there should be a middle ground, not just vis-a-vis -vis the internet, but in real life. You shouldn't automatically give people veto power over every decision you make and you should not be so constrained that you never want to you know, ruffle any feathers. There should be things that you stand for that are that are more important 
than uh, automatically pleasing everyone in your life. On the other hand, to just be completely oblivious to the impact of your words on other people, I think is unhealthy. So how about a middle road between being oblivious to other people and to completely cucking for other people? So I try to thread that, that middle road. So how many, how many uh, people in your Jewish community know about your online activities? Oh, would you say? Uh, Oh, um, I, I, I operate as though everyone knows, but, uh, uh, people who know me, uh, you know, or know of me, then every, everyone would know of my online activities. Okay. And, uh, so you're, so when you say like running into people on the street now, are you someone that does a stop and chat? Do you, do you enjoy stop and chats or do you, are you a, uh, stop and chat phobe? No, I'm, I'm, I enjoy it. It depends on the context. It depends how busy I am. depends what else I've got going on. I can't always stop a chat, but I enjoy, you know, running into people who say enjoy my show, but I would not enjoy running into people who hate my show and, and mm-hmm. want to tell me how much they hate it. I don't encounter that. So I, I do a relatively inoffensive show. There aren't a ton of people just dying to hate on me because of what I'm saying on here. And so that's, that's because I'm taking into considerable thought you know how my words and actions and shows will land on on other people now how many uh people would you say in your community um have a dim view of your online activities or or are hostile to them uh i I would say of the people who know me know of my online activities so post porn you know, let's just put all the, the writing yeah. about the porn industry aside. So yeah, yeah porn, th- there wouldn't be many people who have, a, have an intensely negative, like I almost never encounter anyone who's got an intensely negative view of my online activities. Okay, that's good. So um, I, I guess maybe 10, 10%, guessing 10, 20% of the people who know me would have an intensely negative reaction, but it never comes back to me. Like I never, I never encountered the fallout from it. So... It can't be that intense. Like, I think it's important that even when you're going to be ticking off people, annoying people, or infuriating people, if you can do it at a level of one or two instead of a nine or a ten, that's important for your life, <laughs> for your well-being. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> I've, uh, I I do find that I'm in a... I, um, I feel like when I'm interacting with people socially, like post internet, post blood sports, sort of this whole education, quote unquote, that happened, you know, through blood sports. Um, I feel like I'm leaving a very double life. Like my, I, I sort of go out of my way to be more anodyne than I normally am. Well, part of it is I'm reacting to, I may be over-perceiving like how sensitive people are, you know, with this new sort of hyper-political correctness that exists on the other side of the uh, ideological divide that I feel very, um, I feel, I don't feel free to be spontaneous around many people. So that's sort of what drives a lot of my hermit-like behaviors. I don't feel as though... Um, I can express myself fully and clearly without ruffling too many feathers. And, you know, and I'm not talking about, you know, coming out with lots of base takes. I'm just talking about with sort of just against the grain of 
opinions that are sort of against the grain of your your average modern liberal. Right. Well, don't you have topics that you can spontaneously engage with without fearing offense from the, the weather to sports to you know, aspects of popular culture or the news or, you know, for me, there are lots of things that I can spontaneously engage with with, with strangers without fear of giving offense. But I'm not going to talk about, you know, race realism or fascism with strangers, but I can talk about, you know, a hundred different topics uh, spontaneously with, with strangers. That's how I feel. Yeah, I mean, I can talk to uh, people about banal things, you know, whether it be the swimming or whatever little sort of sub-communities I'm in. Um, but I, I, I get a lot of signals. There's a lot of signaling that goes on uh, from them about politics, and they sort of quietly and subtly announce to me what a politic, what politics they expect from me, right? And so... I either have to say nothing about politics or intimate otherwise, right? There's not, I, I don't want to, I don't want to engage politically with people. Right. You don't want are, to engage with strangers or workmates or, you know, people who can hurt you on, on issues that could cause people to hate you. I mean, that's just uh, common sense. Right, right. So you don't talk uh, about your sexual preferences with you know, people you just meet or with people at work. You don't talk about your you know, strong, exclusive religious beliefs, people at work. Yeah, it, it makes for a very sterile culture, though, right? So this it always it didn't always used to be this way. I think right? it did. I think that's exaggerated. It, it was always been this way. There have always been hot button issues when society was more religious. You, know, you had to take into more consideration other people's religious sensibilities. So we've always had to take into consideration other people's sensibilities. And there have always been hot button topics such as you know, sex, race, religion that you can't talk about freely. Yeah, I guess it's like that's how you know you're uh, with your real friends. Because yeah, exactly. You right. You can you can explore these topics safely. Right. Right. That, I mean, that's why I love going to an Orthodox shore. You know, among yeah. Orthodox Jews, I can talk about everything that I want to talk about. I can talk about atheism, Darwinism, Nietzscheism, Adolf Hitler, Holocaust denial, the alt-right, like uh, sexual differences, racial differences, differences, cultural differences. I find that there are plenty of Orthodox Jews that I can talk to about you know, all these things. That's true. Uh, I do notice my, my Jewish friends are are a lot more frank about these things. Yeah. Jews tend to be more frank, I think, in general. <laughs> yeah. And this cuts both ways, but like, uh, I'm thinking of a few incidents with this particular friend uh, that were, uh, <laughs> I can't really talk about it here because it's, yeah, don't, uh, don't, it's don't not safe. For, it's not safe for uh, terms of service, but uh, and it's, it's weird. So once that glass is broken, you know, like once you know, <laughs> You can safely talk about these things. There's just like a, a lot of laughter that accompanies this. But that that's what the internet blood sport sort of did, though. I think in, in a strange way, the anonymity turned into a certain sort of intimacy. You know what I mean? 
Yeah, I, I mean, it, it was like in the porn industry, people could be incredibly open about all sorts of things that you couldn't be outside of the porn industry. And so uh, Internet Blood Sports you know, gave permission to talk about all sorts of things that you know would otherwise be forbidden. Yeah. <laughs> <sighs> anyway. Okay, man. All right. Good to good to talk to you. All right, bro. All right, we'll okay. talk to you. All Take right. care. All right. Welcome bye. back to the living. All right. Bye. Thank you. Thank you. This is a useless as shithead and nigger nerd. <laughs> is that what we're calling him? Is that the fucking nickname you came up with for Urkel? Are we gonna brand the little kid nigger nerd? <laughs> Whoa, that's a vow. That's the Medica. <laughs> That is a brutal nickname for a child. <laughs> You're not pulling any punches. Mr. Medica, or Jim, is a name you've probably heard of with a voice you've probably heard. He's the most respected out of the old IBS crew, but has had a successful career separate from that as well. Jim first got success from the Gamergate drama in 2014-15, before moving on to videos mocking and making fun of weird or crazy people, fanbases and things on the internet, a sort of precursor to channels like Internet Historian or Down the Rabbit Hole. In 2018, Jim got involved in the internet blood sports community, making popular videos about Kraut, Mundane Matt, and Tonkasaur. However, Medica moved away from the IBS community in 2019, moving his focus to general internet culture, media, and mole cows like Sargon. There are a few reasons for this, but one clear one is that Jim, a 40-year-old married man, simply got a bit tired of being involved in the continued autism of internet blood sports, rather than just laughing at it from a distance. Zoom posting his docs on Kiwi Farms and Medica getting subsequently harassed obviously didn't help much either. Sadly, Medica moved on to BitChute and deleted almost all his YouTube videos, after getting two strikes to his channel and videos which in no way deserved it. He had already been tired of having to neuter videos or scrap them completely to fit within the advertising and vague guidelines, and this was the last straw. Jim posted semi-often to his BitChute until 2020, when his uploading slowed down considerably, until he stopped making videos altogether in July. It's not like he's left the internet entirely, Medica is still active on Twitter, despite stopping streams and videos. It's pretty easy to tell why once you look into it. You can't make much money off BitChute, especially when you have less than 100,000 subs on the site. Therefore, you have to have a great interest to actually make content. Jim is 40, has a job, a wife, and maybe kids. Making videos on an old tech platform probably doesn't seem to interest him as much anymore. If he wants to complain about shit, he always has Twitter. Also, in August 2020, Jim revealed that he is suffering from cancer. It had been known he was sick for years, but until then, it wasn't exactly public what he had. The online world is just not as important to him as other parts of his life. This isn't anything new either. Jim always made clear that the people he spoke to online weren't his friends. He doesn't have online friendships. This is why his anonymity and reluctance to share his private life is so important to him. Probably why him getting doxxed affected him so much. Sure, the internet is a hobby of his that he's had for decades since the beginning of the web, but when he's got a wife, maybe kids, a job, and cancer, you can't expect him to be making videos like he used to. <laughs> okay, so looking at the chat, Funny Frank says, how do I explain Israel then? Then you're talking about uh, high rates of COVID infections in Israel. Yeah, the hospitalization and uh, COVID deaths in Israel have overwhelmingly been among the unvaccinated. So Israel was early with vaccinations, but they weren't forcing people to take vaccinations at the point of the gun. Those people who chose not to get vaccinated be much more likely to get infected, to get hospitalized, and to die. 
So I was looking at the internet and apparently I am worth $2 million. I had no idea. According to Wiki Project Topics, I have a net worth of $2 million. Pretty excited. Where's that money? All right, this is Porcelain talking to Mr. Medica. First to like the 21st. So three whole weeks, nothing but Facebook posts saying, buy me a car. Okay, so this is Mersh back in 2013. For weeks, he, he goes on this fundraising appeal, asking people through GoFundMe to buy him a car and how responsible he's going to be and how he's going to you know, shape up and get his life together. <laughs> yeah, it's so, it's so funny because... He doesn't have Streamlabs or Super Chats uh, on his show and he uses Buy Me A Coffee now. Um, so it's quite funny that it's evolved from Buy Me A Car to Buy, <laughs> buy Me A, me a Car to Buy Me A Coffee, yeah. <laughs> so um, we're about to, okay, we're about to com come into something that's probably going to uh, shock you, so just be prepared. Oh, well, okay. What, <laughs> <laughs> what is this? Okay. <laughs> This Who is, is Michael uh, Shillelagh? <laughs> what? Was he arrested? He was arrested. DUI, alcohol or drugs. Um, was this after the new car? This was after the new car. He totaled the new car. <laughs> DUI. Hey, guys. I'm going to be so responsible. Listen, my life's going to turn around once you buy me this $1,200 car. Oops, crashed into a wall after getting fucking drunk. <laughs> <laughs> it's me, Mr. Shillelagh, the most responsible Irishman on the internet. <laughs> I used gin from all the coke I sold to those gay guys and drove your fucking gift of a car right into a goddamn wall. <laughs> so you can see he was, he was booked in Polk County uh, 2014. Uh, there's his arrest there, um, driving under the influence. Um, there's a violation of probation on there as well from 2015. So this oh, uh, probation, I'm guessing, probably from the car thing. Yeah, yeah, I, I, imag yeah. I imagine so. So, okay. So again, the next one's going to be. Even, even no, he didn't. Come on. A second GoFundMe <laughs> called. Shit GoFundMe. keeps getting worse and worse. I'm just a fuck up, aren't I? <laughs> GoFundMe slash I'm stupid. <laughs> Please and... tell me nobody gave him money. Please tell me that sat at zero. How? And why is it twice, three times the amount of the first one? Yep, you know what happened, blah, blah. Is that really the fucking description he wrote? <laughs> yes. <laughs> That's Shameless <not> even... <laughs> motherfucker. <laughs> oh, thanks for your charity, faggots. <laughs> Do it again. <laughs> hey, you stupid motherfuckers. Uh, give me more money. I'm going to drive it into a wall. My favorite bit is coming as well. That's not even the funniest part of this. Um, oh my God. I can't believe I'm about to... Oh, before we go there. Suicide watch. <laughs> <laughs> you Tumblr bitch. What the fuck? You can have one of a kind wristband for the medical unit where I was on suicide. Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah, it's a job working in like a strip Miami club. Vice look. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Hey, um, look, it's a hundred dollars. That's probably fun to go fund me. <laughs> Held on to that to show off. Yeah. So, okay. So the context of this, he's got a job finally. Finally, 
I believe this was sometime around about sort of 2014-ish, there or thereabouts. And uh, he's got a job as a general manager in a strip club um, in Tampa, Florida. So as wow, you can see, these are, these are some pictures of him enjoying the successes of his uh, of his newfound wealth. And uh, oh, wow, <laughs> what, what strip club? What strip club? What does his resume say? Like they're like, we need security here. Let's hire the guy that lived in his Mercury <laughs> for fucking eight years with no work history. So here's a story about a Tampa strip club manager who claims he was fired over the owner's racism. So the t uh, Mike Sheely was uh, at the time he was general manager at Mike um, Sheely is Mersh. a Tampa strip club owned by Southeast Show Clubs LLC, and uh, he alleged Mike Sheely Mersh had alleged that his boss or the owner of the strip club Michael Tomkovich engaged in consistently racist behaviour towards staff. <clears throat> okay, <laughs> so Sheely, oh, wait, wait a second. Are you sure you have his age right? It, he was thirty three in twenty thirteen. Oh, so this might be oh. Yeah, that, no, that does. Oh wow, <laughs> could be it. <laughs> There's some kind of weird distortion going on. No, he complains that the the owner was uh, racist uh, towards filed the a suit against Southeast Show Club. Was the black the and the Hispanic stripper? So yeah, essentially, Mersh uh, filing a lawsuit against uh, this guy Tomkovich alleging racist abuse towards the dancers. And what well, what was the date he filed the lawsuit on? Does it say in there? Twenty fourteen. I don't know if this was uh, when it was submitted. This is when it was published, though. So 2017. This, he was this... working on this lawsuit for three fucking years? Yes. Four I, years? It was, yeah, it was, it was certainly... Um, he, he goes on to talk about it in a moment, and he, he does talk about how long it's been. And uh, So this, what I think with the 33-year-old thing, I think I think this report was written a few years after... Um, oh, that could be. What's the date on the... the um... I'm trying to look. Sorry. Uh... Oh, no, I can see an upper left-hand corner. Do a legal thing. Said the dude that would post on Facebook about selling coke to gay guys. <laughs> <laughs> You all know me, Mr. Drive My Car Into The Wall, a drug dealer. I'm totally above board. When he made me do those mean things against those innocent black girls, that's where I drew the line. <laughs> I'm a fucking soldier, dude. I don't have problems doing illegal shit oh. for money. In this case, I was asked at a certain point to treat, uh, basically to thin the herd, so to speak, of my black and Hispanic employees. Uh, the impression that came from my owner at the time was that I had too many working for me, and he didn't want to be that kind of club. So I was asked to you know, basically partake in certain measures that were discriminatory <laughs> that would cause these people uh, to not want to be there and to quit, uh, basically force them out the door. And because of my refusal to take part in that, uh, those policies, I was fired. Can but you I have for a second? Yeah. Uh, just, just from a realistic perspective, um, I don't buy any of this. So you're going to tell me the guy who's desperate to make it famous, right, um, who is living in his mercury, uh, is barely scraping by, always begging for PayPal money, uh, you know, has to deal drugs to, for supplemental income, finally finds a stable position working at a place where he's a fucking manager. Deals and he's going to be like, no, I'm not going to do that. Hey guys. I, I have a feeling like there's a real story to what happened. Is it, did the real story ever come out as to why this 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 happened? And I feel like the lawsuit's like, oh, I'm gonna fuck with you because you fired me. I honestly think that he's not wired. I don't think he's wired for a kind of like um, a career, like a long job kind of situation. I think he's al he's always looking for the, you know, for that one big payout. He's always looking for that one grift that's gonna. And I think what what he saw, I think he he probably did witness some level of discrimination or some level of <clears throat> unfair treatment. Sure. And I think in his head, I think that he just he saw an opportunity, and I think he just. He, he just went for the it. dollar signs flash and he thought payday 
exactly. Yeah, that's that's my theory on it. I could be wrong, but um, that makes sense. Yeah, I think that was it. And, and he, like, I don't think he, he really like he thinks he knows law, and he like he does his lawyer merge thing a lot. And I don't think that he actually was anywhere near prepared enough for, for for a case like this. And it got thrown out, and it cost him a whole lot of money as well, unfortunately. Oh, so the, the whole suit got tossed. Oh yeah, yeah. They they didn't want to hear it. <laughs> they just didn't want to hear it. So he got cocktails for four years on lawyer's fees for this fucking lawsuit, and they throw it out. It's worse than that. Like he would he would talk about the, the lawsuit back in the day as if this was my way out. This was my you know, and and in his head it was a done deal. It, he really did think that this was my way out of homelessness of Royce's house of all this sort of stuff I'll have a nice big chunky cushion to sit on um, and uh, as you can see right here he's absolutely devastated oh so this yeah. is after he found out that he's not getting shit yeah yeah this is, oh, this fantastic. Is yeah. that's fantastic that's I uh, found out today that uh, my lawsuit was in fact thrown out by a federal judge uh, we were not given a trial we were not given any of the things that were promised by the system that we believe in um, so yeah it was uh, no trial no jury no nothing uh, just a federal judge who, for whatever, for one reason or another, didn't like me. <laughs> yeah, I like how you go for federal judge writing the guns for darts. So yeah, it's, I think the, it was it was an important thing to to put in there just as a kind of like. Oh, yeah, I, I didn't know about any like the GoFundMe shit. Uh, yeah, I think it's going to cause Mersh a couple of problems going forward. Essentially, uh, this is Gabe Hoffman getting him banned off Alex Jones. The thing is, it's like 2019, right? So mm. they've, they've been going to war for years. Yeah, yeah, yeah. YouTube, YouTube, it's run by the Jews, Mossad, and Israel, and CIA. Press one in the chat. If, uh, if you are familiar with the fact that I tend to have a bit of a distrust for the Jews. Press two, if somebody telling you that I might not like Jews would be a complete mind-blowing fact to you. Holy shit, really? Is he? I didn't know he said those things about Jews before. Gabe Hoffman, you insincere motherfucker. You always knew how I felt about city folk. You know that I truly know in my heart that you people are insidious. You are parasitic and disingenuous ruthless international cabal of people who only serve their own you have very terrible tendencies oh can you pause it for a second <laughs> yeah. oh that was perfect that was perfect timing okay how can he have such vitriol right uh, like oh I, I hate i hate i hate the jews when he was desperate to work with the guy in the first place did he suddenly discover he was jewish after the fight <laughs> well i mean it's it's quite funny because if you if you see him now what eventually happened is during the whole maga thing and, and when he eventually purity spiraled into this he attracted a bunch of uh, a bunch of wignats, a bunch of you know uh, people that obviously like that sort of stuff, and um, that started to affect them as a show because obviously that, that gets them a lot of uh, negative attention when it comes to YouTube banning channels and all that kind of stuff. So Mersh had to retreat very swiftly, and he he would go on these banning rampages, especially on DLive, where they would, all the wignats would usually just be creating end towers and you know talking <laughs> about the shoes in there and stuff. And there's there's so much footage of Mersh just yelling at the wignats, telling them to fuck off and saying to stop with the shoes. But, um, so so it was, it was it was a problem he created for himself essentially. And um, this is why I say this is going to be a problem for him for a long 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 time. Not only like the funny thing as well is he's trying to go mainstream now. Apparently the reason why he's no longer going with the mustache and he's growing back his beard, he said there's a mainstream project with like a producer and a director that have hired him for something that he doesn't want to talk about. But he said it's going to be a massive thing and all the trolls are going to they're going to all be sorry when this happens. And uh, so guys, we just need a cash infusion for phase four of this. <laughs> So yeah, so apparently it's something mainstream, from what he said. Holy shit! How funny would it be if after the Fuentes doc drops, if Louis Thoreau uh, interviews Mersh and Ralph for the next one? <laughs> oh god, mind's eye shit. It's like every once in a while I'll see something that's some new crazy shit, and I'm like, what is this? What is this guy? And now he's like living in the woods or something. I don't know what the fuck this guy does. He's called Bertaria. Um, <laughs> of course it is. Why wouldn't it be? And um, it was a whole thing. They they he essentially was basically trying to sell timeshares on a plot of land that he bought for all of his bears, so that they could. 
they could like buy into it but they would be able to like stay on his property in, in a tent i suppose for like short periods of the year I, I guess he was trying to like create like a like a commune he was going to have like a school there he was going to have like build like a bunch of stuff like a church and stuff like that and it was yeah it was, it was the, the the final stages of any particular cult cult yeah it really was i mean you know we, we say cult and a lot we overuse it for a lot of these communities oh no this is dead on like from was. the small stuff i've seen of him it, it, like jim jones kind of shit yeah mm-hmm. wasn't he um See, this is the thing. Like, I know a bit about the back history, and, and he went after you a bit too, yeah? He did. He, um, obviously, the first documentary came out. I don't yeah. think he was best pleased with that. And then I was, I was about to make a second documentary. And, th- and that's um, when he was, I feel like that's when he was at his height, right? Like, he, oh, he yeah. wasn't, people weren't addressing how fucking crazy he was. Unfortunately, it was also a time where I just got a new job in a career that I've been working for the last eight years to get towards. <laughs> and um, I had to move down to London, and I had a lot of other things going on. So I was kind of umming whether or not to even carry on doing YouTube for a while. And then it, it got a bit much when Owen found the, doc- uh, the documentary trailer, and then he started uh, getting a lot of his bears to try and dig up any personal information they had on me. So that was getting... Yeah, he was trying to fuck around. with you. Yeah, a little bit. I mean, it, it comes to territory, so I wasn't necessarily, you know, I wasn't. I, didn't, I knew that was going to happen at some point. But then he just started, like, one of his tactics, he just, when he doesn't have anything, he just starts calling you a pedophile. <laughs> so he just came on his show and he, and he was, um, he said, oh yeah, I've been talking to one of my bear guys and he's been doing background checks on porcelain and uh, apparently he's a convicted rapist. <laughs> and so I was like, okay, yeah, I don't, I, I'm just starting a new job and I really Yeah, the last need, thing you need. Yeah, so I kind of like dipped out and then obviously the, the running theme there was, uh, Owen ran you off the internet and that you are a pedophile. Yeah, see, I, I never saw it like that. I, I figured, um, because like again i don't have a ton of information but when i watch this kind of transpire mm. uh, based on what i'm remembering is it just felt like he got really mad that people liked the fucking video and yeah. he wanted to make the video go away so he was going to throw anything he could at you right and try to tie it you know like that's that's not like there are levels to shit on the internet like there's doxing and stuff like that but what he's attempting to do is like the old-fashioned life ruination shit <laughs> where we're gonna we're gonna tag you with something so horrendous to your fucking identity that you're gonna regret it it feels like he's like every time he gets brought up it's like something fucking crazier you know what i mean oh, yeah, like yeah. and you know um it's just did he say like his dad was it was a gay prostitute or fucking yes. gay prostitutes or something yeah, yeah his dad i think they had like two hundred and fifty thousand dollars or something uh, and that was like a joint fund that his dad and his mom shared or something and his sure. dad just spent it all on male prostitutes <laughs> apparently I, I mean this is, this is what he said so i'm not, I'm not like, you know throwing that out there as a, as a thing but um yeah he, he just went on tirades about his dad like literally in tears crying while streaming uh, talking about his dad and it was almost heartbreaking hearing it and and hearing about abuses and child abuse and all this kind of stuff it was really that's when i really didn't want anything to do with it anymore because i realized very quickly that this guy uh there's there's levels to this to this level of like mania that yeah, I, you I don't, don't want to go down you don't know what kind of insanity you're dealing with is it somebody that yeah. really had trauma and then that made them crazy or are they a crazy person that's making up trauma you know what i mean yeah. like which which direction are you going because it's hard to fucking tell what they do drinking turpentine <laughs> yeah and a man who's who's open to drinking turpentine i've got to wonder what else he's capable of or what else and uh the way like you'd have to be insane to, to open yourself up to dealing with someone that has seemingly nothing to lose uh, i think it was uh, him burning his kids books that oh really God, made me yeah. go holy shit this dude's nuts yeah i remember clips of him beating his dog as well that was, that was a bit wild. jesus but essentially the, the merch stuff with owen benjamin so back when i was back when i was doing the documentary and, and sure. i was kind of involved in merch's community a little bit me and merch were fairly uh, close at the time good terms and uh, yeah, yeah good terms i'd say i'd be on his show a, a couple of times here and there i mean one of the big reasons like it's essentially like oh you have to platform uh you know the the, the most extreme people in order to, to tick my box of uh, of being a real free speech defender and well, so, isn't that ironic considering you told me that he's banning wingnets for doing end towers in his chat now <laughs> yeah I mean, it's amazing just how much uh, of mercy's history is projection and double standards <laughs> it's um definitely a theme but so matt so Mersh, they, they talk about matt christiansen on revenge of the cis Mersh and royce do and in the clip that you'll see, Mersh starts just railing off about how Matt Christensen is a big phony, just just provoking him for no reason. There's no history between the two. Mersh is just railing off about Matt Christensen, calling him, you know, saying he's not pro-free speech. In fact, I'll just play the clip and let you see for yourself. Sure. You and your little beanie-wearing skateboarding Papa friend, Tim Pool, and all your other little gatekeeper faggot-ass friends like Ford Fisher. I know, right, that you're not used to uh, them enforcing the rules for you guys. I know. You guys just coast to the front of the line. And usually... 
right? It's fine because you're like, oh, no, they're just getting Nazis, dude. They're just getting the really fringe, really dangerous people off this platform. Well, now, dickheads, uh, they're using all these precedents they set to come after you. It sucks. I know. Trust me. I know it sucks. But this is why you should have fucking stood up for everybody and you should have been defending everyone's right to free speech. Not every, not the Matt Christiansons and the Tim Pools and the Ford Fishers of the world, but the fucking Anglins and the Cantwells and the Spencers and all those other people who, by the way, I can't stand either. I just named three people who are human garbage. But when they were getting kicked off the internet, I was uncomfortable with it. While you and your fucking skateboarding pals were all like, but not me, though. I'm a journalist. There's literally no difference, right, between people like this and people like Keemstar. It's all the same bullshit. Well, people are saying Matt has consistently defended everyone's free speech. Matt has defended those people's. No, he hasn't. 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 Go right now. Since you since you look at the look at the look Rice is giving him. He just he just stares at him. People are saying you're completely wrong. And he just stares at him. Uh, just the petulant fingers in the ears. No, he hasn't. No, he hasn't. I just no, 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 no. Right? Yeah, I can't hear you. Marriage, isn't it? It's just like they're, they're just at the end of their tether with each other. And <laughs> oh, this look is priceless. Or the one counter signaling. You go find me the clip of Matt Christensen defending Christopher Cantwell or Andrew Anglin. You go get it then, since you're the one asserting that this exists. You go find it because it never fucking happened. Stop. Stop it. Just because he says I defend free speech, I want a clip of him defending one of the three people I named specifically. Go get it, or shut the fuck up. I'm sick of people going. Well, he, I seem to recall a time when he did it. Go get a clip, or it didn't happen. This man has never defended free speech unless it's for his gatekeeping pals. Okay, so this, as you can see, Matt Christiansen's response to the video, and he says, "Ridiculous, ridiculous to argue against me for what I haven't said." Good point. You have to presume I would not defend the rights of Anglin or Cantwell, which, of course, I would. If you're an honest person, invite me on your show to discuss and gives him the, uh, the thing. And uh, Royce runs the Revenge of the Sis account, so obviously he's, you know... The That's why that's screaming at him. <laughs> yeah. So he sets up an interview, um, and they uh, they get on uh, to talking about Mersh's disagreements in uh, a couple of seconds. Actually subbed to your channel. So you've um, watched my stuff, but you've never seen me defend free speech. No, 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 no. I never said nobody said that. that. No, 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 no. Monday, but I've never... Not, this no, man my, has never defended free speech. That was the claim. And in, in, it's in the context that you've never done it in, a, in, in any context where there's any penalties or any... You've been uh, linked to dozens of clips on Twitter and in the comments of your own stream. What? What are you talking about? I, I, just this last week, no, no, no. I've well, defended Red Ice, I've defended be, Nick Fuentes and the Groypers. Well, the Groypers thing is it's, it's, it's because that's, that's, that's a fashionable thing. Everyone's defending it's the Groypers. There's 70-year-old ladies, yeah, okay. ladies defending the Groypers right now, so that's not... Do I, okay, so it's only the people... First of all, I'm a gatekeeper, but I have to check all your boxes before I can. No, no, you don't have to do anything. You don't have to do anything, but I also... What does it matter? What does it matter? That was a fucking kill shot. Yeah, I knew you'd get on that. Yeah, exactly. That was a fucking kill shot right at... Look at his face, too. Look at Mercer's face. He knows it. He fucking knows it. Yeah, it's, it's it's exactly right. You're you're calling me a gatekeeper at the, at the same time. You're listing people that I have to provide evidence that I've defended in order for me to be pro free, free speech. Who's gatekeeping who? It's, again, it's it's. Uh, I mean, I, I keep saying projection. It's going to come up a number of times throughout this. But once again, it's Mersha. And Rice looks animated just because Mersha's now dragged him into this. Oh yeah, I, I almost feel bad for Rice in this because I think deep down he knows that it's a losing position, but he's probably got to. He probably knows because he's living with Mersha at this particular point as well. So if Royce doesn't go to bat for him as well, that's going to be a, a huge thing after the show. I, I just like how it's paused. Matt's got a smile because it's a gotcha. Rice looks pissed because he got. <laughs> dragged into it and Mersha's got that look like I fucked up. <laughs> it's perfect trifecta. To do anything, but, I, but I also... What does it, what is it, what is it matter? What does it matter? The box, what does it matter what we think? I'm just out of curiosity because you're worried about our boxes being unprincipled. Meanwhile, you totally lack principle. Okay, how do I? How do we lack principle? Well, first of all, you say that I don't stand up for free speech. No, no, I never said you don't. I said you don't stand up for free speech when it's uncomfortable. When well, it's you not fashionable. Never, it's okay, easy, of course. Everybody's like, no, I like free speech. Way, Everyone says that. New England. I have Sorry, defended Cantwell. I have defended Richard Spencer. I check all your boxes. I, but you I, want I, me I know all that. The thousands of hours I have posted of internet content and find you one exact clip to satisfy your weird. No, no, yeah, because we do we do thirty hours of content a week. We do thirty hours of content a week. Okay, I think Matt Christensen comes off pretty well. There. Okay, here's a good, quick little video on how YouTube really works. 
Oh, I've always man. been good at finding patterns. You see all these videos complaining about copyright or censorship or demonetization on YouTube? All of them leave out something crucial. Most people view YouTube as a site which cares somewhat about its users. They tag Team YouTube on Twitter if they notice a problem. They expect YouTube to have some semblance of customer service. They want to fix their problems. Or maybe they're just evil and want to make things the worst for their users. This is like the blue pill in the Matrix. It makes things simple. You are important and YouTube cares enough about you to at least try and make things better or worse for you. This is a flawed understanding of the site. Let's take the red pill. YouTube is owned by Alphabet, formerly Google, one of the largest corporations in the world. So the purpose of YouTube is only to generate more revenue and increase Alphabet's value to stockholders. Yeah, the people who praise the red pill and the people who say they're red-pilled, they're frequently the least red-pilled people around when it comes to reality such as how business works. Any decision they make is solely done for these purposes. Abbreviating subcounts, done to limit sub-loss and therefore increase watch time, make people see more ads and get paid more for ads. Also to stop YouTubers from spending time on Social Blade, instead spending time on another site like YouTube where they can look at ads. Demonetizing edge creators may seem like it would decrease watch time and ad revenue, given that less ads would be shown on those videos, and people would be less incentivized to watch and create content on YouTube. However, this sanitizes YouTube's reputation, limiting controversies that may cause advertisers to pull out. People won't stop watching YouTube because their favorite creators are demonetized or even leave. And most creators who get demonetized don't leave anyway. Advertisers won't want to advertise on edgy content, and making things more palatable for advertisers is YouTube's top priority. This brings me to something else. You are not the customer for YouTube. The advertisers are the customers for YouTube. Your watch time is sold by YouTube to the advertisers for money. This is how YouTube is run as a business. That's how capitalism works. I'm not being political here or explicitly advocating for socialism or whatever, I'm saying that in the modern economy, YouTube is run as a business and does what a business does. You may get upset at your favorite creator being banned, but that creator was a liability to YouTube. The potential negatives of that creator being a loud platform on the site vastly outweighs the positives of having them on. YouTube doesn't hate edginess, nor is their staff filled with fun-hating grumps like a children's cartoon. Decisions are made with money and money only in thought. But if we are the product, the audience of YouTube, doesn't that mean that our needs should be catered to, to make sure we are happy and stay watching YouTube? Well, yes, but most people have a very narrow view of what the audience of YouTube exactly is. Most people who watch YouTube are not edgy teenage boys who watch commentary videos and pay attention to how YouTube updates affect the ecosystem of YouTube. Sure, that may make up 10 or 20 million viewers at most, but YouTube has more than 2.3 billion user accounts. So not even including the large number of people who watch YouTube without an account, that's less than 115th of YouTube's viewer base. Do you know what the largest genres of videos are on YouTube in terms of watch hours and views? Music, kids' channels, and mainstream entertainment clips. Yeah, get the red pill about how business works. All right, terrific uh, channel. Timber on Toast, and he did a good recent video on Tim Pool Milk Toast Fence Sitter. They're going to pull all of this stuff out of context. They'll take it out of context and claim I was screaming that Trump will win, even though he, he was losing or whatever, but they love doing this. I guess just because they want to make everybody hate each other. Another flagship shouted piece of information in Tim Pool videos is the idea that America is on the brink of civil war, a term which comes with a literal definition of being a high-intensity conflict often involving regular armed forces that is sustained organized and large scale. Watch how Tim persuasively builds the case that a civil war is on the horizon based on things he has heard and a general vibe he has before he pivots back to whispering the admission that actually America might not be on the brink of civil war. Will there be a civil war? I'm hearing from so many people that yes, we're on that track. A civil war is coming. That's what they said. They're all saying the same thing civil war. Maybe things will be okay. Maybe this is just getting bad because we're, we're a couple months out from an election. High profile individuals across this country and in many other countries have entertained the real possibility of a civil war in the United States. People are buying guns in record numbers, including liberals, people who used to be for gun control. They're buying body armor in massive numbers. So I can only assume what people are planning for. These things are all happening. Maybe they're isolated incidents. Sure, fine, whatever. Man, it sure does feel like we are inches away from civil war 2.0. Maybe not. Maybe that won't happen. And it's things like this that lead people to believe we are dangerously close to a civil war. I'm not saying it will happen. Both sides say, I'm the real government. 
And then what does the Secret Service do? What would anyone do? Civil war, right? I don't know if a civil war will actually happen. This could lead to civil war. It's funny. All of these people have been saying it. What you need to be careful of is when the government starts choosing sides. And they just did. Maybe I'm wrong. Don't listen to me. Form your own opinion. Here are some more quick-fire examples of Tim executing the shouting idiot, whispering sensible person strategy. In this video, Tim Paul tells his viewers about the Kavanaugh effect, which is this thing that's going to make loads of regular- But this is a lot like Joe Rogan. Joe Rogan loves to shout his anti-vaccine opinions and conspiracy theories, and then whisper how he's just a meathead, he doesn't really know anything. Americans and moderates run full speed to vote for Donald Trump. Smears, lies, and- Okay, enough about- Tim Poole wanted to play a little bit more from the latest episode of Decoding the Gurus. Right afterwards, I do think that that's important. And uh, and do my best to make sure that I've researched these topics, the, the controversial ones in particular, and have all the pertinent facts his, at hand before I discuss video. them. Again, I'm not trying to promote misinformation. I'm not trying to be controversial. Let me just contrast that with... Joe talking at the end of his conversation with, I think this is with Malone. I'm just hoping that that clip where you explained this mass formation psychosis makes the rounds. And uh, I think everything you've laid out today is about as clear and as rational and as uh, well documented as uh, I could have hoped and more. Um, So thank you very much for being here. Thank you very much for everything that you've done. And Jesus Christ, Twitter, put the fucking guy back on. So the the difference there, right, is that I hope this makes the round. He wants the various things about mass formation psychosis to go viral, right? But he presents it as, no, I don't want any controversy. And Matt, just before I get your response to that, one other thing he said was like, he enjoyed his conversation with Sanjay Gupta, right? He respects him. And he also said, I'm going to do research into these topics before I speak about them. I need to look into things a bit more. Let's contrast that with how he frames the situation with Jocko Willink when he's talking about the conversation with Sanjay. I I have two clips relevant to that. If I had a conversation with you about military tactics Mm -hmm. and leadership in the SEALs, Mm -hmm. I would defer to you about everything. I would just be asking questions. You're the expert. I think he had this idea that that's how... But yeah, people like Jocko Willick, right? Uh, The the special forces guru who writes books about management and taking total responsibility. And uh, Joe Rogan, right? These guys are the equivalent of Goop, Gwyneth Paltrow's fight for women, but... Joe Rogan and Jocko Willink, these guys are goop for men. Uh, people like uh, Tim Pool, uh, people, people like uh, the Gorilla Mindset, Mike Cernovich, this is the equivalent of Gwyneth Paltrow and goop. How it's going to be. <laughs> that we're going to have this conversation yeah. about COVID and medicine and a medical situation, and then he was going to give me all of this information that was right. going to straighten me out. Ouch. Didn't work out that it way. didn't work out Well, I've, I've, I've been fucking talking. He's got, uh, Joe Rogan's been studying, man. He's got a file on his iPhone. ...to scientists yeah, and yeah. doctors and biologists and virologists for months yeah, and yeah. months and months. Yeah. And, you, you know... You, you've got to be, uh, the amount of information that you have absorbed in, in the past six months, right? Maybe a year about this. You've been tracking it. You've been talking to all these smart people. Man, that's rough to roll in and think that you're going to uh, trump your, your statements. Okay, Matt, one last thing. So that was Jocko, you know, saying how good Joe is. Joe 
Joe got in there. And uh, the chat says, uh, Jacko Willink pumps out Green Beret porn and he gets corporate nebishes to pay for Navy SEAL boot camp. Dude, now listen to the high Joe frames his level of knowledge in this conversation. Well, I think he thought that I wasn't really informed, but I keep a fucking file. On- <laughs> right, so during his apology, he says he's a meathead and doesn't really know anything and he's just having conversations. On my phone. <laughs> and it's not a small file. He keeps a big file on his phone, guys. He's really informed. I'll show you this. I have a, uh, a folder on my phone called Cooties. <laughs> and this is, these are all COVID oh. stories that I've read. I've yeah. read Whoa. every one of them. Yeah. Wow. I, I know, and not COVID stories, like anecdotal stories. Right. These are all like PubMed articles. These are all like peer reviewed data studies. These are all VAERS reports. These are all like th- th- things on myocarditis. These are all things on vaccine efficacy. Jocko Willink is so the, impressed. The, it wanes when it goes. Right. You know, I mean, just like I've been paying attention. I don't have an uninformed opinion. Uh-huh. I have a controversial opinion, but what else is new? <laughs> like, I'm all, you know, if you if you want to be a fucking independent person, you're going to have controversial opinions. Mm-hmm. It doesn't mm-hmm. mean. And uh, chat said Joe Rogan really is an idiot, a fair-minded and open-minded one, but nonetheless an idiot. That's part of his charm. The audience sees themselves in Joe's chair. That's how I'd be if I had a scientist across from me for three hours. In the wrong. So. Two points there, Chris. One is that there's a big disconnect there with how he frames himself in the apology video as just a person who is open-minded, is having conversations and is looking to learn from experts and is treating them with an even-handed sort of way and that he, he enjoyed his conversation with Gupta and got something from it. In his own words there, it's clear that he viewed that conversation as a confrontational one, as one where he kind of owned Tanja Gupta because he had his dossier, his cooties dossier, and clearly he, he felt he'd won that debate. And that contrasts massively with the conversations with McCullough and M- Malone, where he was so very clearly on the same page in terms of sharing their controversial opinions. So mm. once again, the way it is framed in the apology video is very misleading. He th- thinks of himself as being extremely well informed on this, and he shares the views of McCullough and Malone, and he disagrees strongly with the views of someone like Sanjay Gupta. In other words, he's an activist. He's not an entertainer with an open mind having interesting conversations with people. On this topic, he is that. I would say primarily, but he gets these topics that he becomes very activist towards, which is somewhat ironic because he presents activists as obscuring facts or misrepresenting things. But like you said, Matt, the contrast in those clips, listen to this. This is from the apology video. I do not know if they're right. I don't know because I'm not a doctor. I'm not a scientist. I'm just a person who sits down and talks to people and has conversations with them. Do I get things wrong? Absolutely, I get things wrong. But I try to correct them. Whenever I get something wrong, I try to correct it because I'm interested in telling the truth. I'm interested in finding out what the truth is. And I'm interested in having interesting conversations with people that have differing opinions. Now, Matt, again, Joe's not a doctor, right? He doesn't advance things. He just has conversations. I sent my friend Ari. I sent him. He just had COVID. 
I sent him uh, nurses to give him the uh, IV vitamin drip, same way I did to Aaron Rodgers, mm-hmm. same, way, same way I did to Tim Pool. Oh, you mean Satan? I send people. <laughs> I send people to my friends when they get sick. I'm yeah. like, here's what you do. I'll take care of it. I want to hook you up. So I just set, I have it take because we have a service that we use, and so the service works nationally. Did you have uh, a protocol set up for yourself if you got yes, COVID? yeah, and that was based on all the research that yeah. you've done. Yeah, I was ready to go. Yeah. So you just had to pull the trigger. I just had to pull the trigger, and it worked. And it worked. Five days later, the contrast. Some some slight difference. Some slight differences there, Chris. The epistemic humility that he is projecting in the apology video. Just a guy who doesn't really know. Thinks people should listen to their doctor, take their doctor's advice. Yeah. I mean, I don't even think we need to editorialize it because, like, you should. This is my point, though. People like Sam Harris or other figures who, or Michael Shermer, the head of the skeptic organization in the US, they shouldn't need someone like me or you to point <laughs> this out. It should be fucking obvious because <laughs> supposedly they listen to Joe Rogan, right? So they. They might say, well, this is a good sentiment, Joe, but, you know, you've said very different things very recently. Which one is accurate, you know? or But none of that. Yeah, he's, oh, he's done it. He's answered all the critics. Bravo. Bravo, Joe. Bra- you know. We said it before, but the truth is, is that they haven't listened. They don't know what Joe's talking about, but they know what side they're on in this controversy no matter what it's very frustrating and you're right it doesn't require any editorializing by us anybody should be able to listen to joe's statements back to back and the conclusion is is that this apology is extremely misleading i mean we we could we could be super fair about it and say oh look these okay so uh chat's talking about how brilliant jocko willink is and i guess he's smart but there's nothing unique He's not making any contributions in his, his books about uh, extreme ownership, right? discipline equals freedom, the dichotomy of leadership, balancing the challenges of extreme ownership to lead and win, leadership strategy and tactics, field manual, the code, the evaluation, the protocols, striving to become an eminently qualified human. Right? There's nothing new. There's nothing innovative. He's not moving the ball forward when it comes to management and taking extreme ownership. He's just repeating cliches. Okay, got an email from a friend talking about uh, this book, Everything You Love Will Burn, Inside the Rebirth of White Nationalism in America by Vegas Tenold, who's a social justice uh, Scandinavian journalist, spent a few years among the alt-right, Jeff Shep, Jeff Scoop is a supporting character. The main one is Matthew Heimbach. And uh, one of the major themes in this book, got reading from an email from a friend, is the quandary Jeff Scoop and Matt Heimbach have. They both want to be part of a more presentable white rights movement, yet the only way they can get anyone to show up at their events is by inviting the Klan and waving swastikas. So the only way they can carry any weight is to hold rallies with freaks and losers, yet nobody will take them seriously if they do. So consciously or not, people like Matt Heimbach are trying desperately to get close to Richard Spencer during the time of the book up until Charlottesville because Spencer is what they aspire to be. He's clean cut, he's eloquent, he's taken seriously and intellectually is still reviled. Yet, as Richard Spencer tries to become a public figure, he's increasingly relying upon people like Matt Heimbach and the Nazis and the Klan to come to his rallies. So it's a fascinating view of an extreme parallel to modern East celebrity where there's a food chain 
and people are used and disposed of on purely utilitarian grounds and ideology is secondary. So John Mearsheimer went on Andrew Sullivan's podcast and here's Andrew Sullivan's naive question. John, and, and tell me how you feel about this. I can't see in a million years how the, United, the, the American people will support a potentially catastrophic war in defense of an island that is just that is thousands of miles away, that most of them have barely heard of, and that is historically Chinese and right close to a great power. It'd be like, I mean, it's, 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 it's pretty hard to contemplate that that won't at some point be integrated into China as a whole. It just, it just doesn't make sense to me that it won't. So my question is, how do we disengage uh, without violating our own interests? Obviously, we have interests for our allies there, Japan and Australia in particular. So where do we, where do we go from here? What would be the realist solution to this particular endeavor, except that we shouldn't be here in the first place? But now that we are here, what do we do? Well, we're not going to disengage. We're going to defend Taiwan. That decision has been effectively made. The chattering classes like to go on and on about whether we should defend Taiwan or not, in my opinion. Right. So most of what goes on in public discussion and in the news, you know, bears very little resemblance to America. The American people are not going to vote on whether or not we support or engage on behalf of Taiwan. We have. We're committed. This is a done deal. We're going to defend Taiwan. It's a strategically important piece of real estate for purposes of bottling the Chinese Navy and the Chinese Air Force up inside the first island chain. It's essential that we control Taiwan. Furthermore, if we were to abandon Taiwan now, the consequences on our alliance structure in East Asia would be disastrous. So we will defend Taiwan as long as there is an intense security competition between the United States and China. And there's no end in sight on that front. So we're committed. Now you say, what about the American people? You can't see the American people being willing to defend Taiwan. Do you think the American people are going to vote on whether we defend Taiwan or not? This is not how it works in the United States. In the United States, the president decides to do whatever he or she wants to do. And the president, in my opinion, whether it's Joe Biden or Donald Trump, will defend Taiwan. And we're moving rapidly in that direction. We're moving rapidly to making it a formal commitment or an informal commitment that looks like a formal commitment because we understand that it's in our interest to promote deterrence from the Taiwan issue. How do we thereby... Okay, and uh, here is Lytle's John Mearsheimer on Joe Biden's JCPOA immediately issues that he can... A group of advisors... A few of the Biden administration's foreign policy positions. What's your... Have you been surprised? Have you been unsurprised? Impressed or unimpressed by the first year of this administration's international policy? Well, let me just say, I think that Biden is a conventional politician. At his age, it's quite clear that his brain has been grooved on you know, stereotypical establishment thinking. He's not a wild and crazy guy like Donald Trump. He's got establishment written all over him. And he has a group of advisors who are basically staff people. They're formerly his staff people, and they're not the kind of people who are going to challenge him. So Biden was really in the driver's seat here. And in my opinion, there were three big issues that he confronted when he took over. One was Iran, two was Russia, and three was China. On Iran, he had a deep-seated interest in going back into the JCPOA immediately and making all sorts of nice talk with the Iranians because the moderates were in control then and getting back into the JCPOA, working with the Russians, the Chinese and the Europeans to get that deal done quickly. He failed to do that. And he's in real trouble on that one. That issue has not gone away. And the pressure you know, to use military force against Iran is likely to increase if we don't go back into the JCPOA, which looks likely. So he failed there. With regard to Russia, he made a huge mistake, right? He doubled down on Ukraine. And wow, now we're in this total mess in Eastern Europe. Where we, are, where we are, if anything, upping the ante at a time when we should be downsizing our forces in Europe and emphasizing China. With regard to China, that's the one place where there's some good news, right? That he has the good sense to see that we have to contain China. You want to remember that Biden and his lieutenants were all people who firmly embraced engagement. 
Joe Biden played a key role in helping China to become Godzilla. But fortunately, he understands the error of his ways and he's pursuing containment. But the problem is that the administration has not done a good job of focusing laser-like on East Asia and laying out a clear American policy that our allies in the region can follow. And our allies are constantly complaining that we don't know exactly what you folks in the Biden administration have in mind for containing China. And of course, where are we? Meanwhile, we're worrying about Eastern Europe, we're worrying about the Russians, and we're worrying about Iran. My point to you is we should have taken those two problems off the table and focused laser-like on East Asia. Okay, interesting article here in the Washington Post. So what happens if you have a group that is disproportionately breaking the honor code, right? What happens when you have a group that is disproportionately being accused of lying, cheating, stealing, and other bad behavior, right? So what do you do? Well, you, you can't expect that the group to morally behave better. That'd be racist. The VMI, the Virginia Military Institute, will change the honor system that expels black cadets at disproportionate rates. Honor system that expels black cadets at disproportionate rates. News by Ian Shapira. Virginia Military Institute will make changes to its student-run honor court to make the system fairer to cadets accused of lying, cheating, stealing, or other transgressions that can lead to expulsion. VMI detailed the reforms in a progress report Friday in response to a state-ordered investigation into racism and sexism at the nation's oldest states. Yeah, so if you have a group that is disproportionately being accused of bad behavior, the important thing is to change what is regarded as bad behavior. You can't you can't in, you can't emphasize say moral expectations. Uh, it just couldn't you know, be possible that, that that certain groups may behave more honorably than other groups. Obviously, if if there's disproportion in honorable behavior, in criminal behavior, in bad behavior, then obviously the whole way we're regarding honor and morality and decency is just racist. So they're changing the honor system because black cadets are being expelled at disproportionate rates. So we can't have that. Good article, good op-ed here by Ross Douthat in the New York Times. So you think the Republican Party no longer represents the people. So Ben Rhodes, former Obama White House speechwriter, is writing in The Atlantic. There is no sense in avoiding or diluting the magnitude of this turn in our story, guys. One major political party no longer accepts democracy. Right? So you've heard the same thing from hundreds of pundits and uh, political activists. Conservatism and the Republican Party have turned against government by the people. Only the Democratic Party still stands for democratic rule. And uh, Ross Douthat makes some good points here. First, there is a sense in which conservatism has always had a fraught relationship to mass democracy. The fear of mob rule, of demagogues rallying the masses to destroy a fragile social order, is a common theme in many different right-wing schools of thought, showing up among traditionalist defenders of aristocracy and libertarians alike. Then there are two specifically American forms of conservative anxiety about mass democracy. There's the fear of corrupt urban machine politics that runs back for over 100 years, the age of Tammany Hall. And then there's the fear of non-African-Americans, the fear of African-American political power, particularly in the South. So these influences all touch the modern GOP. So conservatives' skepticism about mass democracy has been a normal part of American politics for over a century, long before Donald Trump was born. 
Now, Republicans have long feared voter fraud. Republicans being right-wing, being conservative, have greater fear of disruption, greater fear of disorder. You could call Carl Schmitt, the right-wing political theor- theorist, the, the apostle of order. Right? What people on the right most want, generally speaking, is order, law and order. So Republicans and conservatives also have a fear of demographic change that could deliver permanent power to the political opposition. So yeah, there are significant fears and concerns among people right of center about mass democracy, and particularly in America in 2022. Republicans have long been more likely to portray America as a republic, not a democracy, and to defend our system's counter-majoritarian mechanisms. We have a political system that makes it hard to get things done and tries to ensure certain basic rights of people that cannot be taken away easily by the political process. But modern Republicans are also heir to a strong pro-democracy impulse forged in the years when Ronald Reagan and Richard Nixon won crushing presidential-level majorities. But conservatives felt themselves constantly balked by unelected powers, bureaucrats, and judges. So this experience has left the right wing deeply invested in the idea that it represents the true American majority, the moral, the silent majority. (laughs) While liberalism stands for elite power, anti-democratic forms of government, the bureaucracy, the juristocracy, and the Ivy League. So with every new age of grassroots activism from the Tea Party the local education revolts of today, the right asks itself as small D Democrats, standing boldly athwart liberal technocracy, singing Yankee Doodle. So Trump's stolen election narratives are a way to reconcile the two competing tendencies within conservatism, the intellectual rights skepticism of mass democracy and comfort with counter-majoritarian institutions, marry that with a populist right, small D Democratic self-image. Now, the present Democratic Party is absolutely in favor of letting as many people vote as possible. But when it comes to the work of government, the actual decisions that determine law and policy, liberalism is the heir to its own not exactly democratic tradition. (laughs) The progressive vision. Oh, boy. Things don't match up, which is a Joe, but... We've listened to Joe enough to, to know what the truth is. And the, the truth is, is that the apology video was designed for an effect. I think he's, he's quite aware that most of his critics and even most of the supporters, the people weighing in in the infosphere, are not aware of the kinds of rabbit holes he goes down uh, on his podcast. And he can kind of get away with it by just pretending it didn't happen and contradicting himself like this. Yeah, and like Matt, just the the tonal difference is so it's so striking. You know, listen to the way that Joe talked about you know all the research he's done and how well informed he is. Then, then listen to this. Um, you know, I do all the scheduling myself, and uh, I don't always get it right. This these podcasts are very strange because they're just conversations, and oftentimes I have no idea what I'm going to talk about until I sit down and talk to people and. That's why some of my ideas are not that prepared or fleshed out because I'm literally having them in real time. Um, but I do my best and they're just conversations. And I think that's also the appeal of the show. I, he, th- so that framing is presenting it as 
I haven't done research. I just have conversations. We just see where things go. And there isn't any editorial line that I'm taking. Can I, can I just... Okay, so back to this Ross Douthat, New York Times op-ed. It's not like one side of the political spectrum in America is much more democratic than the other. So liberalism has its own vision of disinterested experts claiming large swaths of policymaking for their own and walling them off from the vagaries of public opinion and the whims of mere majorities. So you can call this undemocratic liberalism. It's a pervasive aspect of establishment politics, not just in the United States, but across the Western world. <coughs> so often a more important question is not who votes, but who decides. Is it the people? Is it the credentialed experts, the high-level stakeholders, the activist groups, the bureaucratic process? So who should lead pandemic decision-making? Should it be Anthony Fauci and the public health bureaucracies? You know, we can't have the common people playing politics with complex scientific matters. Who decides what your local school teaches your kids? Obviously, the teachers and the administrators in the education system. We don't want parents demanding some sort of veto power over syllabuses. Who decides the future of the European Union? Well, it's the important stakeholders in Brussels and Berlin. Not short-sighted voters in France or Ireland or England. Who makes important U.S. foreign policy decisions? Well, we have the interagency process, the permanent regional specialists and the military experts, not just the, the mere whims of the elected president. play some some clips that might suggest that's not exactly true like it's an engine for fueling views it's an engine for controlling the population and here's my biggest fear it's an engine for the institution of some sort of a social credit system and i think that's common and i think we got to fight like fucking tooth and claw to keep that here it is uh, Regeneron released data that indicated one-dose antibody cocktail cut the risk of catching the virus by nearly 82% from two to eight months. For two to eight months. So it's in, the, this is about the vaccines being an engine for controlling the, the population, right? And then... That's what it is. And that's what it is. And it's a, it's a tribal formation. And... It's people who don't have personal sovereignty and people who uh, aren't confident with standing by their own thoughts and objectively analyzing things outside of uh, uh, an ideology, outside of the tribe. Those people are very susceptible right now, and those are more common than not. The vaccinated people have no personal sovereignty. They aren't willing to look at things, you know, bravely and... Yeah, like my, these are not things that Joe thinks about in the spot. He's repeated these narratives over and over again. In the episodes we've looked at, in other episodes, these are themes that come up. They aren't just things that he, you know, says at the spur of the moment and then retracts the next week. That's mm. not what he does. And just to reiterate, in his own words, he doesn't come unprepared to topics like COVID and vaccinations. He's very proud of the research that he's done. He's very proud of how well-informed he is. So much so that, that he can debate and surprise in his own mind Sanjay Gupta with all of these counter-arguments sh showing him why the conventional orthodox view is wrong. As those clips show, he goes so far as not just agreeing wholeheartedly with all of these conspiratorial claims, but then going on to psychologize this uh, mass formation 
psychosis theory to explain why so many people have turned into these NPCs and are sheeple and are blindly accepting the vaccines and so on. So that, that's how far along he is and how much he's accepted this, this point of view. So yeah, yeah, once again, the apology, I mean, if like the apology video was kind of compelling, like it was well done. Yeah. I, I, li I listened to it just sort of, if I didn't know all of these things, <laughs> if I hadn't yeah. heard all of these things before, I would have been nodding along going, yeah, that, that sounds super cool. And man, you know, you're just, you've been he's getting just a normal guy. Yeah, people he's are just, just going. Yeah, he's he's made a, maybe made a couple of missteps, and then people are jumping all over him for something. It's very misleading, extremely misleading. Yeah, and uh, so we're almost you know for the the end of it. But like, he, here's Joe, you know, saying he's going to make efforts to to make things different moving forward. And this is the part where I think people claiming that it wasn't an apology video or wasn't intended to give that impression. I think it clearly was because of stuff like this. So my pledge to you is that I will do my best to try to balance out these more controversial viewpoints with other people's perspectives so we can maybe find a better point of view. I don't want to just show the, the contrary opinion to what the narrative is. I want to show all kinds of opinions so that we can all figure out what's going on and, and not just about COVID, about everything, about health, about fitness, wellness, the state of the world itself. Um, it's a strange responsibility to have this many viewers and listeners. It's very strange. And it's nothing that I prepare for. And it's nothing that I ever anticipated. I am going to do my best in the future to uh, balance things out. I'm going to do my best. But my point of doing this is always just to create interesting conversations and ones that I hope people enjoy. So Matt, there's, there's a couple of things there. One that, you know, on every issue, if you just uh, bring all positions, including the most extreme positions, that you'll kind of hash it out. And, it, and through podcasts, we'll get together, we'll discover the truth about health and medicine and COVID through listening just to discussions, regardless of, if it's with people promoting misinformation and anti-vax information, you know, we'll work it out. And no, it doesn't work like that because people would then get the impression that the, the doctors that you have on and the anti-vax advocates that you have on, they all have validity to their points of view. The truth is probably somewhere in the middle that, you know, you're not going to get to the fact about medical topics on a podcast by featuring an extreme outlier position followed by somebody in the mainstream who can push back. That's that false equivalence thing where, you know, is global warming occurring? Here's one doctor that says it is and another that says it isn't. 99% of the doctors agree with this guy, but, you know, if you have 50-50, it's the wrong impression. If Joe wanted to give the accurate impression of the relative weight of the opinions, he would very, very rarely feature these extreme lone partisan views, but he's talking about balancing them, you know, yeah. making it a 50-50 equivalence. Mm. I really see a character like Joe Rogan as really a symptom of a broader malaise here, Chris. They've called it the great leveling. It's the effect of the internet and viewer numbers and clicks and so on. 
driving the infosphere, right? And Joe Rogan's extraordinarily popular because he produces popular content, right? He's He's got an affable sort of personality and conspiracy theories sell and misinformation yeah. is extremely appealing to large segments of the community. Now, the free speech and rationalist fond hope is that in the great marketplace of ideas, when all the views are heard across the spectrum, as you say, equal weight being given to the crazy ones at the fringe and equal weight given to the mainstream consensus held by like 99% of people with any expertise in the topic, then all of us listeners will be able to figure out, we'll get to the truth that way. And, you know, sadly, as you say, that's just not how it works. It's quite concerning. I, I think I think Joe is like a dazzled deer in the headlights here. He's totally misled, right? His epistemics are terrible. He's on a personal level unable to figure out stuff like was the moon landing a hoax or not? Is ivermectin a good idea or not? He's personally unable to do so. And he's sitting there with this massive platform and his strong personal opinions and um that's what's led him to be this conduit for dangerous misinformation. Okay, that's it. Take care, everyone. Bye-bye.